Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, this week we are talking with British music writer and broadcaster John Azelwood. So John has been in the business for over 30 years, really. He writes for things like The Guardian, The Evening Standard, The Sunday Times, Q Magazine. That's a big one for me. But he really came on my radar a couple of years ago because he's one of the talking heads on that program, uh, Rock Legends. And I've been so curious to know if anyone out there watches that show like I do. It's on Access TV in the States. It's clearly produced by a British company. And um, so it's probably, who knows what channel it's on throughout the rest of the world. But they take some legendary artists and they discuss them for a half hour, kind of the ups and downs of their career. And there's four or five, you know, British music uh, experts or academics that are sort of talking heads throughout the show, telling the story. And John is one of those people. And if you've ever seen the show, you know that John has a very, he has a great way of talking and a great way of saying things. And he says interesting things and his, his accent is fun and all that kind of stuff. So every time I watch, I always just think, I wonder if that guy would talk to me. He seems so interesting. And I tracked him down and sure enough, he said he'd come on. So this conversation is a little all over the place. We talk about, um, you know, how Rock Legends is put together and produced and made. Um, the bands he likes, the, we discuss, as we often do with people who are not musicians on here, we debate some topics, you know, favorite this, least favorite that. Um, I wish that I had spent more time talking about his time with Q Magazine. In fact, we may have to do this again sometime because that to me is really the gold. And I didn't realize how much, how deep we could have gone on that until after the fact. But uh, I hope you just like listening to two guys, one of them with a really cool accent, talking about rock and roll. It's a lot of fun. Now, um, as we often do, again, with people who are non-musicians that come on the show, we allow them to pick some favorite songs throughout the show. And uh, one of his first choice was this one right here. Shangalang by the Bay City Rollers, and he explains why here in a minute. There are so many interesting stories in this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. He called me from his home in London. Uh, well, before we get into the, your sort of history and biography, let's start with what your first song is going to be, because it's likely going to be playing right here as we talk about it. What is that first song, your favorite song? Well, I think my first song, it's not, not so much my favourite song, but it was the first, the very first moment when I realised that music could have this kind of transcendental effect on, on people, or more particularly, on me too. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was kind of very, very young when the Bay City Rollers came out in, <laughs> in Britain. Now, I was, I was sort of seven or eight, and I was at primary school, and I hadn't, I hadn't very much learned the difference between girls and boys yet. Mm -hmm. So I had no idea that the Bay City Rollers were a, were a, a thing which uh, girls who were five or six years older than me appreciated and everyone else thought they were naff and hopeless. But when I heard Shangalang mm -hmm. by the Bay City Rollers, in all honesty, it changed my life. Really? And it also, it also changed the life of other people too, John. The Ramones were listening. Mm. And they enjoyed the Bay City Rollers too. Mm -hmm. But the Bay City Rollers, they didn't bother with all that, the, the traditional nonsense like playing on their own records or anything like that. <laughs> they were simply a phenomenon who were created 
by a pretty devious manager who mercifully is dead, so we don't have to worry mm -hmm. about libeling him. Perfect. And their songs, their songs were written by Bill Martin and Phil Kutler, who were Scottish songwriters who perfectly understood the minds not only of teenage girls, but of boys like myself. And if you listen to Shangalang, one, it's a magnificent pop song with this huge, almighty production. And two, there was something streetwise about it, you know? Yeah. This was a song about running with the gang. It wasn't a love song. It was almost about the boys from the, the, the gangs of the outskirts of Edinburgh, where the Bay City Rollers came from. And I didn't know any of that, of course. I thought it was just a great song. Sure. And years later, I came to, to realise how naff it was liking the Bay City Rollers. <laughs> and I denied everything. But years later, years after that, I realized that I was right in the first place. And those pop songs that Bay City Rollers yeah. did were magnificent. Yeah, yeah. I feel like they're one of those bands that um, are having sort of a critical reassessment at this point. I think the generation like you who grew up loving that stuff and maybe had critics tell them that they weren't good enough, are, start, are now there's more of you than there are of them. And so there's enough people out there saying, you know what, the Bay City Rollers were actually really good and they deserve more attention. Do you find that? I mean, I find that over here, and they weren't even as big a deal over here. Totally. I mean, there was two. I think they, they had they had several careers because they were big before they became teeny big, mm -hmm. um, and then they had an American career. And of course, they were they were pitted to America when I think uh, uh, Saturday Night mm -hmm. was the, their first great American hit, and that's the one, of course, that the, the Ramones based Blitzkrieg Bop on. Mm -hmm. And uh, and there, I think there was there, in America they were very much seen as being a, yet another plastic British import. Yeah. But by that time, by that time, they were be, the basses rollers were beginning to write some of their own material. Uh, Phil Coulter and uh, Bill Martin had long since dumped them because they couldn't deal with the, the actual pressure that was being put on them by the record mm -hmm. company just to get mm -hmm. hits after hits after hit and to milk this cow while it was the gift that was still giving. And so uh, America had the, had the perception of them as, I think, a, a reasonable singles band, but they missed all the great British singles. Mm. So they were just, so Saturday Night was never a British hit, for example, and yeah. once upon a time in New York, which was obviously geared towards that. And towards a more mature sound, I think they were pitching themselves towards the, the American... AOR market because they didn't have the baggage of these tartan clad buffoons right. which they would never shed in Britain <laughs> and I think on musically there is a sense of, of reappraisal about them but then no they weren't great musicians they didn't they weren't didn't have a lot of talent beyond looking uh, sufficiently sexy for teenage girls but go back to these records and I think they're an important part of pop music I agree Good. Good for you. Now, tell me how old you were when you would have heard this. And then what quantify for us what the change in your life was, if you can. Well, I, it, I was I was very young. I mean, in the in, in the 74, 75, when the basis rollers broke huge in Britain, then I'd be sort of eight or nine. Mm, okay. So I didn't know, I didn't know anything about anything. Mm -hmm. I just heard the radio yeah. and it's made great sounds and it's by it's almost like by default that i heard songs i heard good vibrations mm -hmm. not the version that not not when it originally came out in the 60s but in britain it was a, a re-released hit in the mid 70s mm -hmm. i heard that and i knew it was 
absolutely phenomenal that it came from the same place as, as Shangalang. I also heard Sparks, this time uh. being of both of us. And that was the first album that mm. I bought. Really? I went, yeah. And I, and I know this almost, I was listening to the bassist rollers at the time, so I'm not making myself out to be some kind of super <laughs> eight-year-old kid. I just liked one song. Mm -hmm. And I liked uh, this time at being for both of us so much that I went on holiday with my parents and we were allocated a certain amount of spending money, not very much in those days. We weren't very rich and the, the, my parents naturally thought mm -hmm. I should be spending the time on the beach as, as part mm -hmm. of a family. Sure. Um, but for the whole week, for the whole week, I didn't spend a single penny. And by the end of that week, I had enough to go to the record shop and buy Kimono My House, which there I thought incorrectly was the first uh, Sparks album, because I said, I had no idea who these people were. Right. You look, you look at this. You look at the sleeve, and you see the very strange Chinese or Japanese women on the sleeve. You look over on the other side of the sleeve, and there's Teeny Bop Russell. There's Ron, who looked very strange, mm -hmm. and some other guys who I now know were British, but of course I had no idea at the time. And <laughs> I, as a seven or eight year old, got into this very very strange record by default. It had the lyrics on the inner sleeve. So you had songs such as uh, In My Family, which were talking about Edward Teller. They were talking about Rockefeller. Naturally, mm -hmm. they rhymed them. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know, like, of course, I had no idea who these people were. It had Yehudi Menuhin on yeah. Amateur Hour. And obviously, I, I knew how to pronounce him because I could read the lyric. So that put me a little step ahead of most, most eight-year-olds at the time. <laughs> I had no idea who this was. And Amateur Hour, as, 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 as I now know, it was vaguely hinting about losing your virginity. I had, mm. I had no idea <laughs> that such a thing was there to be lost. <laughs> oh, it's so true. Oh, it's so true. That's great. Well, good. Okay. Well, then let me, uh, that's, that's track one. Let me kick off uh, how I know who you are. And I'm guessing a lot of Americans that would be listening. This is how they would know as well. I watch Rock Legends and have done for a few years. And uh, it's a show that I force my little kids to watch with me. <laughs> and they, uh, they, the younger two don't love it. The oldest, my daughter, Georgia, who's now 11. 11, uh, yeah. 11. She will watch it with me. And she got very <laughs> excited at the idea that you would know her name. <laughs> yeah. Well, a big, a big hello to Georgia. And I hope you're well. I hope you're well. And I hope you're studying hard, Georgia. <laughs> she, she's the best. So you, as I mentioned before we really were recording, you are a minor celebrity in our house. Everyone knows who you are. You're that guy with the with the very specific accent and the very unique views on Rock Legends that we just love. So every time I watch you on there, I always think, that guy is so interesting. I wonder if he would talk to me. And sure enough, you agreed. So now you're stuck. Thank you, John. <laughs> We're bound together. We're saddled. I mean, I, 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 I tried to get my children slightly younger than yours. My, my, my daughter is, is 10 and my, my son is seven. Mm. And they're kind of absolutely delighted that daddy's on telly. That's mm -hmm. great. But what they are not so delighted about is having to go through the experience of watching dad on telly. So yes. they, they very much want to say, Dad, on telly, and uh, do you want to watch it? Do you want to watch it? Do you want to, do you, want to, you know, I'll tell you what I was thinking at that time. I'll tell you how, I'll tell you how it's been edited. I'll tell you more about blood, sweat, and tears if you want. Right. No, they know the, the, bizarrely, I mean, this is impossible to conceive of your own children, but yeah. the iPad 
appears to be more interesting than Dad. <laughs> what have I done wrong, John? I don't know. We have the same problem in our house, believe me. <laughs> but you'll be glad to know that I and my kids might find all those stories you just mentioned very interesting if your own <laughs> kids don't. So I would love to hear that stuff. So anyway, before we get to Rock Legends, let's hear a little bit about you. And I and I hope you'll uh, give us a little peek behind the curtains of the production of that show, because I find yeah. it fascinating. But how did you even get selected? I know um, I know you have a lot to do with British, with football, which I'm afraid I can't, I wouldn't have anything to say on that. I don't follow it or anything. But I know that that's probably like half your career right there. Yeah. So explain us to everybody who you are and why you're on this show. Well, my my situation is that I've been doing I've been doing rock journalism for uh, sort of over over twenty years now, and I I was staff on a, a magazine called Q, mm -hmm. which, was a, which was which was extremely influential, and it sold a lot of copies in the days when music magazines sell sold a lot of copies, and it's still going, and I still uh, contribute to it, mm. um, and there because Q was so influential and I think it changed the, the face of music publishing before I joined it it to change mm -hmm. the face of music publishing I just sort of tottered along with it really mm -hmm. and in that situation then you eventually got to do radio and television work and you got to do the talking head stuff if you wished and being being basically quite egotistical and very much liking the sound of my own voice <laughs> then I was always really up for it and I think that uh, then when the people were casting around the production company who who make rock legends and its associated products such as there's a discovering i think there's a, a pop legend there's several series of this which has been done and i don't know what exactly is shown in america when or right. where or ever so i can't really say then i think they just thought that i was someone who would string a sentence together mm -hmm. and be quite interested. I'm also curious, you know, mm -hmm. I'm curious to learn about some of these groups that I don't know. And not everything comes out automatically, but right. the groups that I don't know about, you get into them really deeply. And I try for every single program, for every single artist to either reacquaint myself and reimmerse myself in their work or discover bands that I'm not wholly familiar with mm. and doing that is great mm -hmm. and also when you interview people as, as I'm sure you know yourself everybody everybody whoever they are has got a story mm -hmm. and if they've made a record if they've had a hit that means that somewhere along the line they have interesting stories so a lot of these people that I talk about uh, I have I've interviewed and I've been familiar with but the ones that I haven't then that's great too because sure. I can make myself familiar with them and usually you find amazing records by amazing people because right. they select such a Catholic range of artists who now give us an example of somebody you weren't that familiar with prior to taking on the assignment um, I think a, a very good, a good example would be Blood, Blood Sweat and Tears, who I, I just mentioned. Now, I, I, I was vaguely familiar with their work, and I liked it. I knew that they were slightly different, mm -hmm. but they'd never, they'd never really done anything in England, and mm -hmm. I'd kind of lost them a little bit as being part of someone who were vaguely psychedelic when they started, mm -hmm. who then turned into much more hardcore funk and then really got lost along the way. Mm -hmm. But that's not the tale at all. There's a tale, of, yes, a tale of people leaving, of them making these remarkable records, which fused all the elements 
of that late 60s period fused soul, funk, jazz, but there was also a lot of pop in there. There was a production values of a, a, a maybe a Brian Wilson or something Spectre-ish. And to go in and to immerse myself in those albums, I couldn't believe, one, that I'd miss them, and two, just how great it was. And if I can con convey some of that enthusiasm, some of that interest to people like myself who are not that interested in blood, sweat and tears, I don't even know what they're about, they've only heard of them and they haven't gone into them in depth, then hopefully the programme is achieving something. Because right. you look at this stuff and you just think, yeah, this is great. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Uh, before we get any further down the line, let's hear another track from you. What what's, what song uh, have you selected for number two? Well, let's try. Let's try The Clash. There you go. Uh, <laughs> White Man in Hammersmith Palais. Good. remains the finest moment of the greatest rock and roll group of their era and this song itself which it only went to to the top 30 in, in britain it was before they the americans discovered them it was when they were just coming out of punk and they they were always too adventurous for punk they were always too, too busy trying to do other things and to incorporate other music. But even the, the song, the way it sounds with these tongue-twisting lyrics, this roll call uh, of Jamaican superstars, people who were unknown, unknown to me as a, a, a young punk aficionado, you know, Delroy Wilson, Leroy Smart, those sort of people, and he lists them. Mm -hmm. And his... Of course, Joe Strummer's vision here was that he was heavily into to hardcore dub reggae. He really knew his stuff there, right. partially because he smoked a lot of dope, but also because he was really an aficionado of this stuff. And he'd gone to Hammersmith Palais, which was a great old dance hall in, in West London, to uh, essentially a, a black culture evening and he thought that everyone like him would be into Leroy Smart, Delroy Wilson but as he says in the, in the, the, the lyric is four tops all night on course from stage right that it was actually very very cheesy and this is and I, I don't think he, he was trying to disparage the four tops you know, who could possibly disparage sure. the four tops sure. but at what he was saying that he was really disappointed that he felt but he was more rootsy and more hardcore mm. than the black population, who yeah. bizarrely, just like the white population, wanted a bit of pop music. They, yeah. they didn't want 
hardcore dub reggae. Yeah. They, they, wanted, they wanted four tops. They wanted Motown. They wanted pop. And he was incredibly disappointed by this. And I think like so much of Joe Strum, that he he was disappointed by things that didn't come up to his own sure. exacting standards and own people. You know, he's a great example of a he's a great example of meeting your heroes, which I always think is a brilliant thing to do. You know, there's that terrible old saying, "Don't meet your heroes." Sure. Why ever not? <laughs> meet your heroes. They're great mostly. <laughs> That's true. I have had uh, almost you uh, know. Uni- uh, un- uh, unanimously, whatever it is, almost completely uh, great experiences, except for one or two meeting heroes for this podcast. Anyway, so I yeah. take it you got to meet Joe at some point. Yeah, I got to meet Joe Strummer, and he was he, he was. Ha- I, I met him. I interviewed, I interviewed him a, a few times. Not I, I'm not claiming friendship as as music journalists often do, mm-hmm. but I met him. I met him a few times, and he was extraordinary. Hmm. And he was how how you would want Joe Strummer to be, and sure. I cannot give him any higher praise than that because yeah. I wanted him to be great, and he was. And I remember you know, in in deepest darkest rural England in Somerset, where where he he lived in later stages of his life, sat in the afternoon in a, a pub car park discussing the individual merits of post-war East European leaders, and it was. Oh. Great, huh? I'd, I'd give it. You know, I'd, I'd give it. I'd give him Todor Zivkov, who ran Bulgaria, dreadful old alcoholic fool, and he, but with a with a rod of iron, who loved the Soviet Union so much that he asked that Bulgaria be made a member of the, the republics of the Soviet Union, much to the dismay of his people, who obviously couldn't express it too much. I talk about him, and, and he'd come back and say, tell us about Enver Hodja, the ruler of Albania, who was more Stalinist than the Soviet Union. In Albania, they had they had more, more days of mourning when Stalin died than the Soviet Union itself. And sitting, oh. I, was supposed to be doing, yeah, I was supposed to be doing a proper interview about some Mescalero's album, but instead, <laughs> instead, instead just sitting with... Joe Strummer, sipping yeah. beer, talking about Eastern European leaders. That is what you want from your heroes. No it was kidding. nonsense, a lot of it. Oh, very well-informed nonsense, particularly yeah. from. But it yeah. was great. It was, for me, for me, it was magical. And I, you know, I, without sounding supercilious, I felt exceptionally privileged to be there. Yeah. I appreciate yeah. it. I properly appreciate it. And if you don't appreciate your heroes... If you don't appreciate meeting them, then obviously you shouldn't be in this. But that yeah. idea, that idea, don't meet your heroes, it annoys me so much. <laughs> My heroes, like, like yourself. And of course you can get people on the wrong day. You can misjudge sure, your heroes. Sure, sure. But most of them are great. How can anybody yeah. whose music I love and adore so much not be great when I talk to them about yeah, it? Yeah, It's illogical. <laughs> that's, that's what I found too. I mean, you tell people you love them and it immediately warms them up a little bit at least you know i um i did get to the one sort of negative experience and it wasn't that yeah. negative i would hate to say that because it, he was perfectly nice but i interviewed carlos alomar and um oh. yeah i had originally interviewed his wife robin clark and we had the Maybe most the backing singer robin clark simple yes mind for simple minds oh, yes okay. yeah. Yeah. yeah uh this and this was just a few weeks after Bowie died, just maybe six yeah. weeks. And I, I assumed that they were divorced. I didn't know that 
they were still together or that they even had a close, you know, I didn't know how close her relationship with Bowie still would have been. Anyway, yeah. she and I connected on every level, had this wonderful conversation, became really good friends. And she said, well, you should talk to Carlos. And I did like the following week. And it was just two people not really fully connecting to each other, you know, not I, I, coming from different approaches and different planets. And I, um, I liked him fine. He wasn't mean or rude or anything like sure, that. Yeah, just yeah. we're not, he and his wife and uh, his wife and I had connected so much and he and I weren't yeah. quite communicating, but it was still a, maybe, a maybe if you go, if you go that circuitous route, then yeah. you're often, you're, he is dealing with your wife's, a very enthusiastic appraisal of you. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Uh, and they were kind enough. They live in New York, and I live in Denver, yeah. Colorado. And they were kind enough to say, "If you're ever in New York, let us know." And maybe if I'm ever there, and we wouldn't that be strange, hanging out at the Al Alamar's house and just you know seeing oh, what books are on the wall and who yeah. knows, maybe one of these days we'll see. <laughs> but uh, for it. yeah, I got to find a way over there. Anyway, I uh, did you ever see the Clash live back in their heyday? Yeah. Yes, I did. I saw oh, them at the okay. peak of their powers, which, which to my mind was the London Calling tour. Yeah. And and I have, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. Anything which provided that level of electricity mm -hmm. and a level of excitement that the, the Clash could offer as a visual spectacle, I can still recall it. I can still recall it perfectly, and I can still recall the kind of tremors. That I felt, mm. and there was again. It was I, I saw a lot of the, a lot of the punk bands, a lot of the British punk bands, and the, the Clash to me, to me, were always the cream of the crop because they were they were so questing and so adventurous, and not everything that they did worked, not by any means at all. But when they when they were in their stride and live, and it was the, the classic lineup, obviously, mm -hmm. Joe Strummer, Mick Jones, Paul Simonon, Topperheader, mm -hmm. then. They were the perfect rock bands. And people tend to say that about bands of their era, of course. Mm -hmm. You know, people say it about the, the Rolling Stones, sure. those people who, who saw them in, in the 60s. And people often say to the formative period, you know, I was a teenager, very heavily into music at, at, at this time, of course. But seeing them, I, I, I wasn't, I was discerning enough to see and to hear and to understand that The Clash were bet, a better live group than their peers. But I don't think it wasn't me being brilliant, John. It was just so obvious. It was obvious, right. So obvious. They, they, they were absolutely sensational. Now, of course, if I'd seen that band for the first time, even at their peak of their powers, 10 years later, then I, I might have been a little more cynical. I might have seen more bands, and I might not have been able to have been so directly influenced. Yeah. By them, so it's always a combination of where you are in your life, and usually, if you're a if you're a teenage boy and you see something like that, it's like music from another planet, you know. But it's a mm -hmm. music from another better, more exciting mm -hmm. planet. Absolutely, I agree. I got to see Joe about six months before he died in San Francisco at the Fillmore, and it was such a great show. And who knew that he would be gone? You know, shortly after that, it's so sad. But well, no, nobody did. Nobody no. did. And, he, and yeah. even at the end, he did, he made a lot of mistakes, both in the clash and after the clash, career-wise. Yeah. Um, and he did seem to be getting it together, but also he seemed to be coming to terms with his past and with being in the clash. And the 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 one good thing I guess about the the clash is that they they didn't reform. Mm -hmm. uh, 
if they had articles, been excited, of course. nervous about it, and everything else, but they didn't. And it keeps it keeps them perpetually young. It keeps them perpetually in this kind of aspect where they have those records, even cut the crap, which had this is England on it, so we mm-hmm. must never get those good songs even at the very end. That's right. And they have this this hermetically sealed career, yeah. and I love that. Good. I do love. Well, good one. Okay, uh, so let's go back to Rock Legends. Now, tell me yeah. anything you can about what happens behind the scenes. I'm always curious, <coughs> number one, if you guys, um, are you talking for hours and they take out little snippets that they want to use? Is the t- Do they give you a script? Do you write your own script? How does, do you come up with your own things? When you, when you say that something is less successful, do you, is that your opinion speaking for yourself or is that, are we telling is did a producer say to you we're telling a narrative here and there's an arc and we need you to be the guy that says that this period is the not very good period how does all of this work i think you, you, there isn't there isn't a script john certainly the, the, there's no script and i do they roughly they suggest the people who who we do and obviously this is this is in conjunction with the various uh, television companies who commission them? They suggest they suggest the artists, and that's which I, I'm totally in love. I'll do anything that they want because I'm so interested and excited mm-hmm. to do it and to to discover things about people. And then I do pretty extensive research. The 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 the, 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 the programs run to a reasonably similar format in terms of there's stuff about the the early life of the people. There's how they became big. What happened when they became big and what happened afterwards, either if they faded or if they managed to sustain it. Mm-hmm. So that's essentially the story of, of, of Rock Legends. It's, a, it's an introduction to various artists and it's an introduction and a, a little pocket guide to them. Mm-hmm. But in terms of saying what you think, then I, I, I can say very much what, what I want, but it's mm-hmm. really important to put not so much a positive spin, because that's not telling the truth. And everyone has within their careers good albums and sure. bad albums. If you, sure. yeah, if you talk, or good albums and less good albums, mm-hmm. or good albums and pivotal albums, or good albums and albums that they really wish they hadn't made. Right. And in terms of if something is poor, then I think it's usually good to get some kind of backup. So it isn't me banging on mm. about how rubbish a particular album is. That mm. usually, if your critical faculties are, are pretty much alert to the situation, then the band have usually said something 10 years later that this album wasn't really our best or anything. Or you can even say that when there's sometimes people are ungrateful or they, they misunderstand their own success. And they don't kind of realise that this was their great album, the one that everybody mm. wants to hear. And mm-hmm. um, so, therefore, you can be you can be as as honest as you wish. I think it's it, it's if you let's say if say if you're, say if you're doing Bon Jovi, whom, whom mm-hmm. we've done, then it would be irrational and it would be wrong to say that Slippery When Wet wasn't their most important album. Right, right. Yeah, it'd be ludicrous to. to, to bring in that country album or those albums his uncle produced and say, look, this is a great lost Bon Jovi album. Because then, because usually the public is right. And and also your job is to explain 
why say slippery when wet was the great bon jovi album mm -hmm. the fact that all the planets aligned for them the fact that they got desmond child involved the fact that their songwriting moved up a notch the fact that they were so desperate that they had nothing to lose but to go for it at that time after a couple of flop albums if you can bring those things in that's part of their tale but uh, i i think the credibility of the program would be shattered if i said look slipper and wet sorry sir it's not fake at all unlike unlike the the bon jovi album or right. new jersey you know which is a great album of course but yeah. it's still not slippery when wet. No, yeah. Okay. Um, so you, you, I think what they're, they're using is, is, is partially an ability to string a sentence together, but also a little bit of, of depth of understanding as to what happened in each individual case. Yeah. And it, 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 <clears throat> it gets complicated when you do bands such as the Monkees, mm. who made some great singles of yeah. course we all know and love but going through their albums even when they establish creative control it's really difficult to get that narrative arc going sure. and you yeah. use the phrase about the arc but something like that is incredibly difficult to mm -hmm. to put into perspective even from a band who most americans feel that they're familiar with but i don't feel and i may be wrong of course that they're familiar with the depth of the later albums yeah but then you also have to try and explain to people that the, the later albums although they had a lot of monkeys input in it weren't particularly successful for a very good reason yeah. as in weren't really very good yeah very true i just recently bought a monkeys box set that had all their first 10 albums or whatever first nine albums and because uh, I would, I was mostly primarily familiar with the singles up to that point. And of course, you're yeah. right; they they don't have a definitively great album, but they are one of the greatest singles acts in all time of all time. And in fact, I'm gonna when we get to the kind of rapping about music that we like or didn't don't like, I'm gonna bring up a couple other because this is a topic I want to touch on later because I have some strong. I'm I'm formulating some theories here, John, <laughs> about artists that I think might be a little over. Uh, overhyped and so we're going oh, to discuss yes. these later okay yeah um, far away. good okay so but for now to kind of continue on rock legends so let me are you um how much time are you given to do research when you're filming is it like one day in a hotel room and you've got like five different jackets to put on over three different shirts you know <laughs> oh John, i think i think you overestimate my wardrobe to be honest <laughs> um, <clears throat> um <clears throat> The actual the actual clothes that are worn, uh, they're, they're they're quite strict about what what is worn because they want something which will uh, not. How can I put this? Something they want something very plain which mm -hmm. will not aggravate, say, HD cameras, sure. and they want something which will go against almost any background that they they choose to put in. So they 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 are reasonably in, in, insistent on what's worn. I naturally like to wear a suit on television because people should wear a suit on television. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and I feel much better and much, much more confident. But in terms of the amount of time it takes, usually I'm, I'm given a, a couple of weeks to research and to research the areas, which is, is, is long enough, but it's also never long enough as well, mm -hmm. because I, 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 the chance of luxuriating in all these albums again, because you're dealing with heritage acts, you've got a lot of a lot sure. of catalogue, mm -hmm. and I, I love to get into them and over and over again. 
um, to to get all the, the the peaks and troughs of their their careers and the general progression. No, I could I could take months researching, frankly. But that's of course best that I'm not given that time because right. it'd be ludicrously indulgent uh, to do that. So I'm given that time, and then we usually record uh, a couple of episodes in okay. one go. Okay. Um, and the amount of time usually takes about an hour, about an hour and a half. And they do, they, they cut out some of my waffle, of course. Mm -hmm. They cut out some of the, the, the factual errors that perish the thought mm -hmm. I have been made to make. And that's humiliating. And I wish mm -hmm. it never happened, but it does. Sometimes you say the wrong year. Um, <clears throat> and on that basis, you've got to give them enough to go with sure. because they have to, they, in terms of editing, which I, I have nothing to do with, then they have to queue up the, the music and film based on what they have got. But also there's the other contributors too, yeah. who are just as excellent as I am. And sure. they, they too have to be, they've got to be in, included. And there has to be some kind of, again, to use your phrase, there has to be a narrative arc yeah. which tells a tale through many different voices. Okay. And it, I guess it's a case of who, who expresses themselves most eloquently and who fits in with the narrative at that particular point. Okay. Do you, uh, do you do multiple <clears throat> takes ever? Is there ever a time when um, a director there is... is there and like, we, you know, could you say that a little differently or look, you know, there was a shadow on your nose or whatever, something like that? Um, well, occasionally, occasionally I, 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 have, I have notes, which is like a comfort blanket. Mm -hmm. um, I never look at them because mm -hmm. there's, there's never time. But occasionally my notes do pop up into camera and then there's a big sighing all around and I'm <laughs> Put the notes back down, John. Right. Don't want to see your notes. They want to make it look like you're perfectly spontaneous, which of course it is, because right. I'm banging on about it, and I've just got them there in order to hold. And sure. if, I, if I stumble over a sentence, as you will discover when you edit this, John, if I, <laughs> if I, if I, if I stumble over a sentence, um, because there's so many sentences to stumble over, mm -hmm. then they will say, do it again. And sometimes there's spoonerisms. You mix up people's names occasionally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, it's just the, the way it goes sometimes. But, of course, I, I'm not there to do multiple takes. I'm, yeah. do, uh, I'm there to impart as much information as I can with a, a reasonable, hopeful sense of uh, addictive humour hmm. and uh, some sort of gravitas too. So if I think... I probably wouldn't have done so many series if I, if they did have to keep stopping and right. starting. You know, time and film is money, apparently, mm -hmm. John. Yeah, that's what I hear. Okay. <laughs> yes. Now, it's largely, um, I would say most of the episodes include you, Will Hodgkinson. That's his yep. name, correct? It is, yes. Uh, and I debated whether to go after you or Will, but you're such, you're such a unique character. And I thought, I, gotta, I want to talk to John. I may go for after Will one of these days too, and then uh, Sunta Templeton. Am I saying that right? Uh, yes, yes. Okay, and I should I should clarify. I've never said your name out loud. Azelwood is that? That's it. Yes. Okay. Yes. Good. Perfect. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Good. Uh, and then there's uh, <clears throat> Joe Forrester, I believe, once in a while, and a guy named Hamish. I think what's Hamish his Mc... Hamish McBain? Yes, that's right. Yes, he is. I don't think Hamish has done too many of the recent ones. There's Michael Bonner. Who did something? Who's the uh, he's the editor of Uncut magazine now, mm. and um, they they do they change some of the people around. But I think part of the joy of the program is that it, it is the same people, mm -hmm. and that it gives it some kind of continuity. And people do 
know that Will will wear these uh, fantastically exotic shirts, which I, I can't <laughs> seem to get away with, unfortunately. Um, um, and his afro or perm is going to be just so, you know, just so perfectly disheveled. You know that it took him hours to make it look that messy, you know? Will's, Will's hair will be great, whatever the circumstances. <laughs> it's a hair. I wish I could grow such hair. I wish I had dark hair, too. It'd be <laughs> yeah. great. And I, I I wish I had Will's wardrobe, too. But, oh, there yeah. are, but you see, there are still things that we can all aspire to. And I, I don't know. I don't know Will well, but I know him and he, he, he's without question one of the good guys. Good. And I, that leads me to another question. You guys are never in the same room or interacting with each other. You're just off doing your own things and the producers are mixing these together and editing them into the episode. No, they, 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 they keep us apart. Perhaps okay. they fear there'll be some kind of squabble Maybe. or some, or some, some, some kind of discussion about which is the best Doors album. Right. And I don't, I don't think they want that. They, 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 they can't afford security. John. Yeah, I think you might be right. I think you might be right. <coughs> uh, okay. Well, good. Well, okay. So let's uh, break in here and talk about a third song. Tell us what we're going to hear now. <coughs> um, now we're going to hear, uh, Knowledge of Beauty, which is by uh, Dex's Midnight Runners. And some, sometimes in later editions of uh, of the Don't Stand Me Down album, it was called My National Pride, which I'm slightly uncomfortable with. I prefer Knowledge of Beauty. It's a much more, um, for want of a better word, it's a much more beautiful title. And I think Dex, Dex's Midnight Runners were a band I was absolutely obsessed with. Mm. And, and also, hindsight, I think rightly so. And I know they're perceived as very, very differently in the United States. Now, they have the hit with Come On Eileen. And I always remember the bit in, in The Simpsons where where Homer is banging on about uh, one of his pop groups, probably Fog Hat. And uh, he, he, in passing, disparages Dex's Midnight Runners as a novelty group, as a one-hit wonder group. And that was simply never the case. And Kevin Rowland, I, I think, is one of the, the great artists of our time. And the, the, the Americans have never really had 
the opportunity to experience how how great he is. And every time Dexter's Midnight Runners have made a record, he's made solo records too, but everyone is vastly different. And I, their first album, Searching for the Young Soul Rebels, I came into it late. You know, I'm much later in, in, in my teenage years now. And I came into it late, but I came, came, came into it very, very, very heavily. And one, one time they, they were touring. I hadn't, I'd never seen them before. This was after Gino, their, their first number one British hit, before Come and Eileen. Right. And they cancelled the tour. And I, I had tickets for these tours, and I was absolutely beside myself with oh, grief. So right. I, I was very, I was very, very cross. And I think the way that only sixteen and seventeen-year-old boys can be, because I, as you know from your own experience, when you're a sixteen or seventeen-year-old boy, you know absolutely everything about everything. Sure. And if someone someone upsets you, then you want them to know. So I, I took it upon myself to write a letter to them. <laughs> <laughs> saying how disappointed I was that they had cancelled this tour, how I was looking forward to it, like no tour I'd ever looked forward to. And that I, I thought, frankly, they were a bunch of sellouts. Mm-hmm. And I obviously get a cathartic experience for myself. And uh, that, that, that was very much that then. Except it wasn't. Because, bizarrely, they wrote back. They did! No way! Okay, tell wrote, me. They wrote back. The drummer, uh-huh. he wrote back. He wrote a long, long, proper long letter. This is not fob off territory at all. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> mildly apologising for the uh, for the inconvenience that had been <laughs> caused to myself, and so explaining why it had happened. They'd had management troubles, and all this turned out to be true. They'd had management troubles. They'd uh, stolen the master tapes of their second album to stop the record company from releasing it. They were on an extraordinarily tight budget because there were so many of them, and the record company had denied all their funds. And he sent me this very, very long letter. And at, at the end of it, he said, well, I know you said you cancelled your, we'd cancelled the whole tour, and that's nearly true. But as you probably noted, and I think I had noted quite disparagingly, that we're still playing to London. <laughs> Uh, so he said, why don't you come down? And again, I'm 15, mm. 16, I, I'd never come down to anything. I don't think I'd ever been to the bright lights of London before. He said, come down. And extraordinarily, I, I did. And so <laughs> as, a, as a, a sort of 14-year-old boy from a northern mining community, I, I got on the bus to London, <laughs> went down, and uh, they had left an all-access pass. No uh, way. With, oh, as, you're, as they, you as must they, be as, in heaven. I had, no idea, I had no idea how these things work. I had no idea that guest lists were this, this thing which is it's not set in stone. It's yeah. set in blancmange. <laughs> and the fact that you, you may or may not be on it. And there's, in these days, you can actually present a text message saying you're on the list right. and show it to the very grumpy bouncer. <clears throat> in those days you couldn't but anyway they, they'd left it on and I went to the Dominion Theatre which is one of the great theatres in London to see Dexys perform and of course it was it was extraordinary and before they were on I'm access at all, all areas past I had no idea what one was of course I hadn't mm-hmm. and, and it actually let me wander 
on the stage before no. the, 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 there were roadies and stuff setting up Dexy's gear. And I was wandering amongst them, and there was nothing they could do. I had this pass, which of course I virtually tattooed to my head mm-hmm. because I, I, I didn't want to lose it, and I was so unfamiliar with these things. And the Access All Areas pass, it got me into their, their dressing room afterwards. Wow. And they were there, mate. More awkward than you can possibly <laughs> imagine. I, I, I believe think, it. You know, you know, I'm 15, I could barely speak to the girls in my class. Yeah. And here I was, here I was in the dressing room of this band I adored beyond adoration. And I, I'd managed, and I, I almost can't believe I'm telling you this, but I managed very full. I managed to put a, a, a copy of one of their seven-inch singles, the cover of one of their seven-inch singles. And I went round getting it all autographed. Huh. And the drummer was saying, and this is the bloke who wrote us that letter. Oh, no way. <laughs> and I was going, guys, guys. And of course, and just being awkward and saying, uh, backing down, of course. I didn't mean it. Thank you. You were great, which they were. They were great. We mustn't forget this. And then it kind of dawned on me that I, I'd never stayed in a hotel in my life. I'd never stayed in London in my life. I was 14 years of age. And the, <laughs> This is prey to, to some of the most more dubious elements of London society, then and now. 14-year-old boys should not be wandering or their, their way around London. But this, in fact, had all been taken care of. No way. And Wait, I, they put you they, up like in a hotel or something? No, they, no, no, they didn't. They didn't at all, John. Uh-huh. No. The drummer, the drummer, the person who sent the letter, uh-huh. goes, uh, right, are you ready? Are you, we're off. And me and the drummer and the drummer's girlfriend went onto a bus <laughs> the top uh, can you even remember now it was the top deck of a red London oh. bus and we went to their house he put me up himself no he put me that up that is crazy <laughs> the drummer put uh, of course it's crazy you couldn't do that now in today's <laughs> climate to a 14 year old oh my god yes, a 14 year old boy I mean, needless needless to say he behaved absolutely impeccably. He was doing sure. it out of proper generosity. And the goodness of his heart from this guy who'd sent him this pretty disparaging letter, whom he had taken seriously. Wow. And wow. It was, and, and I was, of course, incredibly socially awkward. They tried to get me, they tried to, get me uh, to eat uh, a Chinese takeaway with them. I had never had Chinese food. Oh my God. I had no idea what Chinese food was. I didn't know. Oh, of course, they, you know, him and his girlfriend were were a, a man and woman of the world. They they travelled the world playing playing the drums. Yeah. No, I'd never been to a Chinese takeaway. I didn't know what to do. I had to tell them I wasn't hungry. Of course, I hadn't eaten. I hadn't eaten since the previous night. Right. I could have eaten my own fingers off, but I didn't eat, and I didn't have the social skills to say, one, I've never had Chinese, or the social skills to actually attempt to eat the Chinese food. So I came I came back with him. They, they very much enjoyed their Chinese food. And this uh-huh. is him living quite a, a, a everyday existence after having uh-huh. appeared at one of London's great theatres. And we talked a lot, and I don't know what they thought of me. Wow. I, cannot possibly imagine and they 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 seemed as far as i know to to at least make a good fist of enjoying my company uh-huh. uh, and i was obviously totally and utterly overawed by the whole thing that um, but, is mind-blowing 
yes, but he put me up. And the next morning, the next morning, then we woke up and it was uh, it was another date on the tour. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, oh, why don't you come with us to Birmingham? And I and to, of course, I regret this. I had to turn it down oh. because no, because I didn't. I regret. Of course, I regret it. Of course, yeah. I regret it more than I can possibly say. But again, I was fourteen. I had I, I had to get back, and I hadn't bargained for any of this. <laughs> of course. And, and, I, and, and I just said no, thank you. And I did. I did at least have the foresight to say I'll probably regret this when I'm talking on some American podcast. And all the, the catharsis and the, is, is is coming out. Uh-huh. And, and I saw the band come in, and the, they came in this van to pick him up. As I walked down the street, the band came one way, I went the other, and it was an amazing experience. Wow! And of course, by the by the time uh, that we hear "Knowledge of Beauty," we're on now to Dexy's third album. The drummer, bless him, has long had long left the group. But this song, I think, uh, epitomizes how mm. unusual Dexy's midnight runners were it has this great piano coda by vincent crane of all people who was an atomic rooster for a while and the ending is beautiful the sentiments are absolutely to me even now they're they're mind-blowingly apposite for someone in a in 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 the later stages of their life just looking back and it's incredibly mournful and it's hopeful. And it's, I think, one of the, the, the most amazing songs I'd ever heard. I'd hmm. quite be happy to have this at, uh, at my funeral. Hopefully people will be wee- weeping and wailing as I, pass, <laughs> as I pass amongst them dead. But if they're playing this, if they're playing this it will add to the sense uh, of the case. John does. might be gone, but he sure had good taste in music. They're going to be saying that as they hear your song, right? <laughs> All I want, and play, and and so long as they play to the end to get that piano. Good. Well, we're going to make sure we do that too. I don't know if I know this song, and I think I know Dexy's pretty well, but I'm, I must be too casual a fan. It's off. Don't stand me down. Okay. Which was the the great, the great lost work, one where they dressed as as Brooks Brothers models. Yeah, that's. I don't have that one, so I don't know this song. Okay, good, interesting. Go for it, John. astonishing record and an astonishing album too okay good um okay well just to wrap up the rock legends things are you guys still in production i mean i don't know how many i over here they're on a cable channel called axis which not everyone has but most people do and they're usually on mondays or tuesdays i think and sometimes they are two at once and um so it's not like a i don't know it's sort of it's it's not on like one of the hot, you know, big networks. It's kind of out there. You have to look for it if you want it. But are you yeah. continuously producing new episodes of this or have you run well, out? No, or? What happens is, is that they're done in a, a glut. Mm-hmm. So there'll be, I think, two or three series done over a, a very short period of, of weeks. And then, then there's a gap and then some more startup. So hopefully, hopefully there'll be some more in the autumn and that should take us to eight, nine series now. Hmm. And, okay. But this, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know where people are going to go with this because it's it's there's obviously a finite amount of, of 
sort of 60s or 70s acts who can be done. So we may well go back to a, a more discovering idea. But I think that the, the rock legends never really, never really ends. Mm-hmm. We can, there's so many people who can be done who fit into that format too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got my DVR set to record. And I think the last ones that came on were Aretha Franklin and Run DMC. And I don't, I haven't watched them yet, but I don't know how long ago those were actually. They were, they were, the, Lee, Aretha Franklin and Run DMC, they were done this year, I'm pretty okay. sure. Okay. Late, or late last year. They're, okay. they're, they're, fairly, they're fairly recent. Great. Okay. Well, like I said, John, you've got a rapt audience in my household anyway. My daughter <laughs> and I just watch every week and um, we just think you're the most interesting, <laughs> fascinating person in the world. And so <laughs> I, uh, I'm really glad that you agreed to talk to me. Now, let's get into your history a little bit. You mentioned writing for Q. Uh, Q, especially back in the 90s to me, who yeah. was falling in love with all the Britpop stuff that was happening at the time. Q is the Bible as far as I'm concerned. How do you go from the 14-year-old that sees Dexys into a you know, a noteworthy music writer? How do you follow that career? Well, there's, there's, there's a lot of luck, John, but also, uh, I, frankly, I don't have any other skills. Mm, all I, I can do, I, all I can do, I can, I can string a sentence together verbally, roughly, although obviously I'll give you an extremely uh, uh, demanding ed- editorial job, I'd imagine, but, uh, but I can write. I can put words in order on paper. I'm totally, I'm useless around the house. Mm-hmm. My sporting skills are shockingly poor. I have no DIY skills. Um, I'm virtually enumerate. And there is simply nothing else <laughs> that, I'm, that I'm capable of. But I, I, I know a lot about music and I love the actual notion of music. If I don't like a genre, that's my fault. I ought mm-hmm. to try and get into it a little bit more and to try and discover what it's about and what people like about it. Right. And so from there, from that sort of 14 year old, things are formulating, but it seems so far away. You know, I'm hundreds of miles away from London normally. Mm. And nobody I know is in music yeah. journalism or any kind of journalism whatsoever. So uh, it, it, I, I went, I went to university Universities then and now have newspapers. Mm-hmm. And the, the university newspaper run by students is a big thing in student life. Mm-hmm. And the university that I went to was a, a place where bands came. Not every oh. university was on that particular circuit. But bands of a reasonable status, not, not your arena level bands by any means, but over term time, it had several quality bands who, had, who were either big cult-wise or had hits, perish mm-hmm. the thought. They, they had real hits. And, was, and it was also very exciting. It was, it was not genre-specific. Mm-hmm. So you'd have pop acts, you'd have rockabilly acts, you'd have uh, electro acts in those days. And that meant that there was a hugely eclectic number of bands coming. And I got myself into the university newspaper and sort of elbowed my way into being pop correspondent. There you go. Gosh, because nobody else wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. And when the bands came down, then I would interview them. Mm-hmm. And, nice. and it, it meant that I, was, I had a sort of crash course in interviewing bands. Yeah. And interviewing bands as a student and a, is very, very different from what happens later when people are sort of glad that you're there, that it's an important <laughs> thing for them. Yeah. The, student, the student newspaper is the bottom <laughs> of the picture, it's the, but they 
Yeah. And they do feel entitled to disparage you in mm. any way because they'd rather not do it. They know they won't sell any records mm -hmm. for it. They can't sell any concert tickets because they're there. Mm -hmm. So True. they take the actual process of interviewing pop, uh, of, of being interviewed by student newspapers less seriously. But it also toughens you up. Yeah. And so I did a lot of interviews at that time, which meant that I had cuttings to show people. There you go. Who was particularly difficult back then? Uh, uh, the absolutely disgraced Gary Glitter. Oh. Was, oh, my word. He oh. was... <clears throat> and uh, this, this feels like hindsight talking, but it wasn't. Um, I... Again, I was obviously it was students, so I was sort of eighteen or nineteen mm -hmm. years age, beginning, beginning, beginning to work out a tiny bit of the world. And Gary Glitter, who was massive in the student population, no one had any idea about what was to come. Sure. And I interviewed him, and the I used to be able to take a, a photographer because naturally, student journalism means student photographer. The student photographer whom I happened to take at this time was uh, one female and two, how can you say? She was a, she was a very uh, attractive woman. There you go, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and I, his reaction to her was just unspeakably really? creepy, mm. shockingly creepy he uh, it, it was one of those interviews where and I'm, I'm, we've, we've all had them where they've got they're not even answering your questions <laughs> maybe because they were dull because i was a student journalist but he was just following uh, eyes wise he was following her around the room and he was making sort of not crude not not swearing not must must be fair to them and, and relate properly what happened not he, he no one was propositioned nobody was hurt no one was said anything wholly untoward to but he was his eyes were following her yeah. and he was he was pointing out to her how uh, attractive she was in a in a way that she found uncomfortable mm -hmm. and mm. interviewing interviewing and I came out talking talking to her, and she was going, "This is so creepy." Oh, and I was going, Look, "I feel so uncomfortable about this." And wow. it was, I, you, you can't, you, you cannot join the dots in those situations. Yeah, yeah. of course yeah. you can't. You don't know. You right. don't think this man is a, a, a rampant paedophile or anything else. You, yeah. but you know something is wrong. Hmm. You know this person is not behaving how he should and you know that it's not even that way that obviously pop stars don't necessarily behave like we all would like them to do at every given moment of the day mm -hmm. but that's you know, that's fine they're not they're, they're not like us frankly mm -hmm. but this was different this was different this was wrong and it was creepy oh, and it was, boy and you know you know I, I, it's not hindsight. There was something wrong, and I knew yeah. there was something wrong at the time. Wow. And certainly, certainly, so did she. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay, so you saw it, or at least sensed it, even back I then. I sensed it. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I did. I mean, I have to, I have to stress. You know, I didn't see anything. Sure. There was nothing. There was nothing in that in that context to see, but it wasn't right. Okay. Okay. Who was especially? Did anyone stand out as being especially cool or nice? Well, I mean, most of did. did the, the DJ John Peel. Ah, um, 
I'm not sure how familiar you are with him there, but I, he, I mean, I know his legend for sure. Yeah, his legend. He 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 used to do sort of touring shows when they came down. He and the, I, I this that sounds almost awful, but he he bought me a pint of beer. Really? As oh. and as a student journalist, as a student journalist. You don't know the ways of the world. You don't know what free things are available to you when you get into the, the wider pop journalism world. Then he he bought me a pint of beer. I just thought that was, I was again, so excited. So excited to have someone. Just, whoa, John Peel, he bought a pint of beer. And he was really nice. He was really nice. He made it seem as though, made it seem as though my questions were good. That my interviewing technique was good. And clearly, you know, I mean, of course it wasn't. It wasn't remotely developed at that time. But he had he had he had the decency, had the decency and the the, the, the good the good manners uh-huh. just to behave kindly to someone in that situation. Yeah. And it does make a difference. You know, if you I think it says something about if you're kind to student journalists when you don't have to be and they they, they must be a little bit pretentious, a little bit annoying, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, then I think it shows what sort of person you are. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, that's that's interesting. I I my goal growing up was very similar to yours. I also was a reporter and a editor for our college newspaper. I went to Brigham Young University and um, oh, really wow yeah yeah and um, I uh, but I wasn't getting I never got the kind of assignments I wanted. I was a sports editor for a while, which was you know the second best thing probably to being the music editor. That was fine. But <laughs> after I graduated, I too had a you know, a stash of clippings that I sent out to multiple places, hoping to get yeah. that job as like, you know, some stringer for, so I could just cover yeah. concerts or whatever, but no one ever would give me that job. And the only jobs I could ever get were covering, you know, the city council meeting on like, you know, yeah. Wednesday nights at seven o'clock yeah. or Saturday mornings at eight. And I, that <laughs> just didn't, didn't interest me at all, you know, and I, nor did I even feel like I had a talent to do that kind of reporting, you know? Oh, is that, I think that that sort of traditional journalistic reporting, the skill that it takes yeah. is absolutely extraordinary. I'm totally in awe of it. Mm-hmm. It really is to do that, to sift that information through and to report it in that neutral style that you have to do. That's a great skill. Yeah. And I think it's in danger of being lost now, you know. I agree. And, and the, 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 the idea that journalists can hold local democracy to account, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's fading. Because there aren't the journalists there anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I struggled with that. And so I gave up journalism eventually, even though that's what I got my college degree in, because I was never, you know, getting the kind of, I wasn't interviewing John Peel or even Gary Glitter, you know, I was interviewing people whether they wanted a stop sign put in their, you know, on their corner or whatever. And it just didn't, I didn't care about that as much, but. Anyway, so tell me more about Q. Now, well, let me let me ask Ashley more of a broader question, and this is something I'm curious about with you. Do you yep. view are you primarily, would you say, a reporter, a critic, a little bit of both? Um, where what are most of your music related assignments relating to? Um, I, I'm not really a news reporter. I think okay. that sort of that sort of skill is is one that I don't have. I okay. think. That the the skills, without sounding immodest, that I I can bumble along with, mm-hmm. are having some sort of kind of critical faculty, mm-hmm. and and interviewing people. 
Mm-hmm. And obviously this doesn't come over in, in, in Rock Legends or anything like that. But they're the, they're, the, they're the skills that I built what I did in. And there's a, in, in these things, you, you know, you you talk about what you did and then you clearly didn't get the, the, the look. Yeah. And there is a lot of look involved in this. It's mm-hmm. not just, it's not a meritocracy. Mm-hmm. It's not like, it's not like sport. Which is a meritocracy, and and I, I I've learned a lot about that by doing sport. But music isn't a meritocracy, and music journalism isn't a meritocracy either. And I I got lucky, yeah. and I you know I went I went went to London and did all sorts of menial jobs. Yeah, I drove car parts around. I worked in offices with appalling people, mm-hmm. and. I, I did whatever I could to make money, but what I really wanted to do was to do journalism. I did mm-hmm. journalism for free, which is precisely what I would advise anybody now not to do at all. Right. Right. But I, I, I have to admit that I did it, and I slowly, slowly managed to get little bits of breaks so I could work for Melody Maker, and a, a, a music paper called Sounds, which mm-hmm. you, you may not be familiar with in America, but it was one of the big the big trio in that. Yeah. And I did that just towards the end of the time when I left, as I left university. And I worked for Melody Maker for a, a period. I worked for a, a pop magazine called Number One. Hmm. And this was like, it was, it, do you remember Smash Hits? It was, oh, it was of like, course. Yeah. It was like, it was, it was sort of the Smash Hits that didn't sell quite as many. Hmm. And it was weekly and it was totally and utterly devoted to pop. Hmm. And at that point, they were, desperate for people not necessarily to write for them but reliable people who would go and interview anyone and i would go and interview anyone and i mm. loved it i mm. loved it people's music i didn't like not a problem at all i'll go and talk to you and of course it was because it was a pop magazine then the, the questions were pretty trivial a lot of the time they want they wanted me to go shoe shopping with the great reggae legend freddie mcgregor you know, <laughs> you know i'll go shoe shopping with freddie mcgregor they were they <laughs> They wanted me to go caving with the alarm oh. in, in in North Wales. They wow. they 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 started sending. Me did you do caving. it? Did you go caving with I them? Did. I, did, yeah, I did every single thing. They sent me to places. They nice. even they even sent me to to the United States for the first time. Oh really? This was just as a freelance. And I, okay. And I, I, you know, I didn't realize what this was like. Imagine, you know, I was naive enough going to London and not having a, a Chinese takeaway with. Dex's Midnight Runner, uh-huh. but going going to America, wow! And I, I d- wow. totally totally. Where did you out. go in America? What did you do? I, I the first the first time I went to America was to do Heart. Oh, uh huh. Who were in their Bad Animals phase uh-huh. at the time, and they were playing. They're playing. See, I can remember it so well. I can't remember what I did last week, but uh-huh. I remember going to to Homedale. To the, the New Jersey, ah, uh-huh. uh, massive, massive outdoor venue at the time, and in, interviewing them and being in America, the they, they, the record company, as was there, because there was money around in those days, mm-hmm. they they would send a limo to pick you up, and the guy, the, the guy knew I'd never been to America before, and he insisted on taking me down Broadway so I could see oh, it, wow. and. Imagine, I'd never seen anything like this. Of course I was willing to, to go to Broadway. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why I even asked. Sure. I, so I saw all, those, saw all those things for the first time, and it was extraordinary. And going, to, and, and the, again, 
budgets are tight now, but they weren't so tight in those days. So you could go to to see Hart in New Jersey. I think I spent four or five days there. We go boating with them down the great big whatever whatever river it is that runs through through New Jersey. We saw about three or four shows at this Homedale place, and. At that point, I sort of realised that this it might be possible to take this uh, a, a little bit further, yeah. and that it and that I enjoyed it, and I could turn around interviews quickly to the style, not necessarily my own style, but the style which the people want the, who wrote the magazine. Yeah, yeah. there's no point. There's no point writing as Dostoevsky mm-hmm. if they want Jeffrey Archer. True, true. You know. What they want is what you want, and I could I could do that and feel good about it too. Good. Yeah, it wasn't selling out my old punk days. It was great. I could do this is this is writing. This is what it was. It's for, and eventually I, I built that up, and I edited a magazine. God knows why anybody let me edit any kind of magazine, <laughs> but I edited a magazine called uh, Tracks for the BBC. Okay, where I got I, I was actually taught a bit how to edit and everything else. So I got experience there. So uh, a job came up at Kew and I went for it and extraordinarily, foolishly, they, they decided to give it me. And I wow. stayed there for 10, 12 years, I think. Wow. When would this have been? Like in the 90s, this, I'm guessing. This was, it. This was late 80s through okay. the 90s. Okay. Um, peak. That's peak Q period, was, if you ask me. It was, it was the peak period. Yeah, and I did all sorts of jobs there. I did a lot of writing. I ran their review section, which was great because it meant uh, you could actually run a, a platoon of mm-hmm. super enthusiastic, brilliant journalists. And I, I had the time of my life. Oh I, I, my gosh! Going going to New York was no longer a novelty, and I enjoyed mm. that period where it wasn't a novelty. Mm. I just loved going. It was brilliant. Yeah. I wasn't so bright eyed anymore, but I hadn't lost any enthusiasm to it. So you interview interview famous people, mm-hmm. people who were selling a lot of records, people who were important, and you'd interview them in situations where it was whoever they were, it was important to them that they be interviewed. Yeah, and that's that's such a difference that yeah. they that getting to do Q to be to either be in Q or to be the cover of Q mm-hmm. used to mean a lot mm. to almost every artist that we ever came across and uh, some of the, the, the always insisted that photographers who I worked with we say we are the rolling stone of Europe <laughs> and, and yeah it wasn't technically true but every single band understood what you meant by sure it. sure wow okay um now oh gosh I, I have to admit John this is it's it's a little painful, actually, to listen to you <laughs> retell this story because it mirrors the life that I wanted for myself and didn't oh. get. You know what I mean? Especially British. I mean, my regular listeners know that uh, British alternative rock of the 80s is pretty much my sweetest of sweet spots, you know? And um, What's your sweetest about- of sweet groups, John? Well, um, I'm a big Bowie guy. Um, Bowie's kind of my guy. But um, in fact, I have a holy trinity uh, Bowie and Neil Finn slash Cradit House, and then uh, Hall and Oates. I love Hall and Oates. Oh, those nice. would be like my my top three, I would say. But all of those, you know, you mentioned the Alarm. I interviewed Eddie McDonald recently, and uh, oh, yeah. that, that episode came out recently. And you know, things <coughs> yes. like the Smiths and New Order, and yeah. um, 
that is just Echo and the Bunnymen and Psychedelic Furs. Those are my formative years. You talk about Dexies and The Clash, and I love all those bands too. You're a little bit older than I am, so they would have, <laughs> you know, um, kind of come and gone before I was too cognizant of what was happening. But oh yeah. man, that that was my period. Those eighties. Yeah, I did go to Nilton's house once. You did? Was he nice? Yeah. Of course he was nice. Was he, he good? Okay. He he was great. He was he was living in Melbourne at the time. Uh, and it was it was around the time of Woodface. Uh-huh. And obviously we we flew around the globe to yeah. literally flew around the globe to go to go to his house. And the, the the thing that struck me about him was the first thing he said to us, well, why why are you here? And and myself and the, the photographer, they said, well, obviously, we've, we've come to see you, Neil. Mm-hmm. We, your wood face is just going to be fantastic. Again, obvious that uh, it was going to be so brilliant. And he absolutely couldn't believe that we'd come all the day. He goes, you're not doing anyone else. You're not doing any, any anyone else a bit more famous. You're not doing loads of Australian groups. No, no, no Neil. No, no, Neil. We are for you. We, we have come for you, and we've come to meet your brother Tim Finn, who is in the band. Yeah, can we start yeah. that one again? Um, <laughs> we've come to we've we've come to see you, Neil. We've come to see your brother Tim Finn. We've come to see Paul Hester. We've come to see Nick Seymour, and then Neil Finn. We're going home. That's what we're doing, That's and we're amazing. here to see you. And of course, and he. he he thought we were joking and we thought we gave we said right we're here we're, we're here for two or three days whatever you want we'll do it's great his wife cooked his dinner we met oh. his parents little liam liam finn who is now obviously yeah. a recording artist in his own right we saw we we were there when liam finn's nappies were changed <laughs> uh, that's crazy and, and they, they thought they thought quite correctly as it happened that we didn't have anywhere to go we didn't know anybody so, so hang hang with us we went we you know they took us out around melbourne they took us to clubs not neil but the the other members of the group who were mm-hmm. a bit more or a bit less married shall we say mm-hmm. yeah. they, took, they they took us out and about and you know we had a, we had a marvelous time and Meeting them in that sort of situation and at home, <clears throat> interviewing him in his home studio. Yeah, you know, they're so relaxed and they're so flattered that we we made the effort. And it, but it really was no effort yeah. on our part at all. Yeah, great. That's the job. That's what we do. Great. We will come and see you. And thank you for inviting us into your home. Mm. And we can do this brilliant thing about you. And yeah. uh, to do those sort of things. And I know. People such as yourself would have given anything to do it, but so would I. Yeah, and you did. That's, right. That's and incredible. I never, and I never, I never ever lost that sense of appreciation about yeah. it. Yeah. My family and I moved, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and we moved yeah. to Cambridge, England in 1991. Yep, did you? Yep, yep. And uh, so we lived in Cambridge, and I saw a crowded house at the Corn Exchange. I've been there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I saw them for the first time, um, and the only time, unfortunately, with Paul. Uh, I've seen Neil several other times or crowded house, but um, that was the only time during their, you know, their heyday years. But yeah. it was, uh, and I had a big post. Tim had left by that point, yeah. and I had a big <laughs> poster from that show on my wall in my bedroom in Cambridge, and. Um, those were good days. I just, uh, I love those guys. What do you make of Neil joining Fleetwood Mac? I don't know what I make of it. I, I mean, either. I, I really don't. I mean, it's, I, 
<clears throat> clearly there's there's a lot more school degree and, and shenanigans with with Lindsay, but yeah. but to get him in mm. and just wow, you know, it's it's a bit like that. That it's like the period where they got Billy Burnett in, but mm -hmm. but just more extraordinary. I I think he's going to be brilliant, you know. I I, 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 uh, I do too. I can't. I, I'd be really surprised right. if they record. Yeah, I'd be really surprised if they if this lasts longer than a year <clears> or two. I could see him and Mike Campbell being a, especially Mike, which makes perfect sense, uh, yeah, a, a yes, great yes. contribution or addition to the touring. But to me, Neil has always seemed like such a uh, an independent, I don't need to answer to anyone kind of artist. And the thought of him joining this gigantic yeah. machine that is so much bigger than him and having to be under the thumb, not that he's not a nice person and, you know, can't be told what to do, but that's just never been his, the vibe yeah. of his own yeah. career. He's built his own career to not have to do that. I can't yeah, but see it, but. Precisely. That's what happened. That's what happened when, when Tim Finn was in, in crowded yeah, house. Exactly. And, but I mean, Neil, Neil's, you know, it's a very, very smart man. He must know exactly what he's joining up for. I know. And, but I, but also, I take what you said, but I can't imagine that he would join a group such as that and not want to at least contribute or co-write some new songs. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know people don't desperately want to hear Fleetwood Mac so new Fleetwood Mac songs, but they, they they haven't they've never disgraced themselves, partially because Lindsay's so rigorous on the, right. the song in front. Right. But uh, to have Neil Finn in there, who is a little bit of a control freak like Lindsay, and mm -hmm. also is on a, the songwriting front just as rigorous. Yep. Then I I, I don't know. I'm very excited to see how it'll pan mm -hmm. out. Yeah. But I, I find it very very hard to predict. There's so many ways in which this can go. And mm -hmm. clearly, clearly, if it doesn't if if it doesn't work out on a, a personality basis on when they do tour, then obviously that'll be the end of it. But sure. what, what what if it does work out? I know, it's so what strange. That's even stranger than if it doesn't, honestly. This yeah, lasting for the next totally, 20 years or something. Totally, yeah. totally. You know, you can imagine Mike Campbell can fit in with anyone. Sure. But he's not the, the, the songwriting behemoth that mm -mm. Neil Finn is. Mm -mm. But what if that does work out? Who exactly is it going to work out with? I know. The permutations and the, the power struggles which have, have never seen even though Lindsay's gone you know yeah. the power struggles are still very much there yeah. i i just don't i don't see where that's going to go but it's mm. going to be great yeah they're coming here to denver this fall and i'm of course going to buy a I, ticket because i'm so curious to see it for myself but uh who knows it may have disintegrated by then who knows but i, I don't know I, I i don't think it will have i think i I th I think the commitment that they've made will be honoured. Yeah. Because Neil Neil Finn's not a walk away. People That's tend to true. walk away from him, and no no one in Fleetwood Mac is yeah. going to walk away mid tour from Neil Good Finn. Good point. Good point. And they, you know, they may try to kick him out, but it yeah. just create too many problems. Yeah. If he doesn't work out, if he doesn't work out, then there will be a quiet parting of ways mm -hmm. at the end of it. Yeah. But uh, if it does, imagine. So just strange. Imagine. So strange. Uh, okay, well let's uh, let's invite one more, uh, the fourth song, and then I want to get into, you know, favorite albums, favorite all this kind of stuff, least favorite. So tell us one more song. Yeah, sure. Let's take. Uh, can we take a more recent song this time? Sure, let's of course. Take, let's let's take uh, "Tilted" by uh, Christine and the Queens. I don't even know that.
Someone, Christine, I've never met Christine, and I, I don't know very much about her, but this album was was huge in Britain um, a couple of years ago. And she makes this the most sublime, beautiful music that mm. you could possibly imagine. She's she's French, so there's a sort of arty twang to it. Mm. But the, the amount of thought that goes into it and the amount of the, uh, the twinkle tone musical backdrops that she produces make it something special and this is sort of you know this is the second decade of the 21st century and people are still making music which is capable of being as exciting and intriguing and beguiling as it always was mm. and that ultimately and i know this sounds a bit bland but all eras are the same and it's not bland because within each era, yes, of course, there'll be drops, of course, there'll be nonsense and rubbish and mm -hmm. people being very cynical about it. But in every single era, in every single decade that has passed since rock music came to be, then there has been a significant amount of people who change things and people who make great music. And and I know what troubles the music industry is, is in at the moment. I know how difficult actually making music and making money from music is at the moment but that still doesn't mean that there aren't great artists as worthy as listening to as there ever was and christine the queens are a great example of this Good. okay wow okay i got some homework to do tilted by christine and the queens yes okay yes. excellent we're gonna play the, the it right album, here the album is called chaleur humane okay Excellent. Oh, I like that. I'll go looking into looking into it. Uh, okay, we'll do, we'll now, yeah. now let's talk about some fun <clears throat> stuff. And let, yeah, I should right. preface this: are, are you okay with talking about people you don't like or think are overrated? I don't know how plugged in you are to the music scene. Where yeah, speaking fine, just, fine, okay. let's, let's, let's see, see what you got to say, John, and then we'll okay. we'll, we'll, we'll work it. We'll work it from there. We'll okay. From there. Okay. So tell me who you think is one of the most overrated artists. <clears throat> mm. Mm. And I'll a... I'll tell you that theory I mentioned earlier that I'm oh, yeah. working through right now. But you tell me first. Who do you think? Um. We've hit a, we've hit a silent wall. That's I'm, okay. I'm, well, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to get out. I'm not trying to get no, out. I yeah. I'm I, I'm looking. They don't have to be current, do they, John? No, they can be whoever you want, historically, anyone. I did. Someone that we, just never registered for you that other people seem to like or something, you know? Yeah. 
if it, if you come out with these things, John, then the, the, the and if they're a, an established artist, then you have to accept, I think, that you are wrong mm. and everyone else is right. Mm-hmm. But, but, I simply cannot grasp James Brown. What? Wow! We did a rock legends on him. We did yeah. a rock legends on him, and I, 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 I went deeply. I went deeply, and. I totally understand what a pivotal figure he was. Of course I do. Mm -hmm. I totally understand how he has changed the force of music for the better. I totally understand how we wouldn't have hip-hop without him, let alone Mm -hmm. all the other genres that he's absolutely essential towards. And yes, he's an important artist, one of the great artists of the 20th century, but I can't listen to him. Mm. I know what you mean. The no. fault is mine. I, no. And I know how funky, I know how tight it is and everything else. But yeah, it, yeah. essentially, I don't really like being shouted at. Mm. I and can I, see and, that. And it's yeah, certainly not a, a, a rap or a hip-hop thing. Mm. I love rap. I love mm. hip-hop. I love talking to rap people. Mm. I love talking to rappers. I love talking to hip-hoppers. They're great to talk to. They're mm. absolutely brilliant. And... It's just someone who that the music he has influenced is so much better than mm. the music he made. Interesting. Okay. But I but I am wrong. Okay. Now I uh, I feel like you do about a lot of that stuff too. If the masses are feeling one thing and I'm feeling something else, then it's um, I'm not declaring anything as anyone else is wrong and I'm right. It's more yeah. I just haven't gotten with the program. And like you, I um, I interviewed another music critic named Stephen Thomas Earl Wine. I don't know if you know who that is. He I do writes, know him, yes. All music. Okay. I've heard. Yep, yep. Not much. I interviewed him about a year or so ago, and he had mentioned, said very similar things about Jimi Hendrix, which makes perfect sense. And my response then was Janis Joplin. Both, you know, on... In, oh, yeah. Yeah. You see, this yeah. is... Okay, so you... We have these responses, don't we? I mean, Janis Joplin, one of the most amazing female vocalists ever. That doesn't mean that I necessarily enjoy listening to, like, one of her albums. Yeah, it's said, my my reaction to Janis and to James is the same. Please stop shouting at me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Please stop. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, well, I got a little list here. Some people that I think of uh, who you guys have done Rock Legends programs on. I've never quite understood what was so great about the band. Uh, Bob Dylan's the band, Robbie Robertson. Oh, oh yeah. no, no, John! I'm totally, totally with the band. Um, yeah, and they're not they weren't a particularly exciting live group, and their music is one of those. It, it's they need work on, I think, because mm. it, it, it's it's at first listen, then they're that kind of bland side of Americana. That really indulgent thing where you, yep, you can all play guys, but the mm-hmm. songs, no thanks. Mm-hmm. They're not really enough. You can't do songs. And musicianship isn't everything. And I'm not a massive fan of musicianship in that, you know, you don't want people who can't play, obviously. Sure. But the, the, but the notion of musicianship is, is hugely overrated. Mm-hmm. But everyone in the band was this consummate musician. Yeah. And the way it gelled together just takes time. Mm-hmm. It takes time to absorb and to understand, and that that what we're talking about earlier about re- immersing yourself in catalog. When we did the band, I got back to these records. Really, and honestly, John, they're extraordinary. The depth and the sophistication of what these 
four different songwriters are doing. Mm-hmm. You know, there wasn't there wasn't a, there was a leader. It was Robbie Robertson, mm-hmm. of course. But uh, on the songwriting front, everybody chipped in, mm-hmm. and everybody had different skills and different attributes, and they brought these songs to the collective. And for for all that it wasn't a democracy, for all for all it was these competing egos, and for all that they had different musical inclinations, when someone brought a song to the band, they made it special and they made it their own and they added all sorts of wonder and magic to it. But it takes so long yeah. <laughs> to absorb. You need a you need yeah. a bit of time for the band. But honestly, John, that time is so well recorded. Mm. I guess, and I know most people, yeah, I know most people feel like you, I I probably have, and you know what's weird is that I I love The Last Waltz, but uh, (laughs) for whatever reason, and I haven't, you know, dug into every album multiple times, but it's never quite caught me or got its hooks in me to, you know, Mm. where I felt provoked to keep listening. Um, In fact, two other shows you guys did recently, I think, um, I've never come around really to like that Southern rock sound of Allman Brothers or Leonard Skinner. because, you know, when they keep it short to like a four minute song, I, I'm OK with that rambling man. And, you know, but the noodling and the constant and it just I, just I get so bored and it doesn't do anything for me. I, I, I to be honest, I can see where you, you coming from a lot with the the Allman Brothers. They mm-hmm. do. And I think also that you need that that having that specific Southern American cultural reference point means that you can enjoy those bands a lot more than mm-hmm. even people like yourself from Salt Lake City or people mm-hmm. like me from another continent mm-hmm. that, we, that, that we don't instinctively plug into it. And no. I do, the, 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 the Almond Brothers, they're terribly, terribly indulgent, but there were moments of magic. Yes, there were I moments agree. And there I were agree. times when it all came together, even something as, as, as simple as Jessica. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just great little song it's not important yeah. it's just really good you know yeah. and with Linda Skinner I mean their their story the things that happened to all the not all but almost all the members of the group not just the ones who died in the in the, the plane crash the story completely overwhelms the music yeah very true because because they have this one song in Freebird that that dwarfs the rest of their catalogue, then there is an incentive, I think, not really to delve too deep into the rest of their catalogue. But when you hear when you hear albums like Street Survivors, you know, they they're not great albums, but they're really good and they're strong albums too. And if you were to take Freebird out of the Linus Skinner catalogue, which I know is almost unthinkable, but if you were, <laughs> then you'd have then you'd have a very good, a solid rock band of decades building up a strong mm-hmm. catalog mm-hmm. and you would start to quote all these other songs and not yeah. just sweet home alabama is is it freebird distorts them totally yeah yeah i uh, for whatever reason again it's not that i don't that i actively dislike these things they just don't do anything enough for me to hit repeat or pull out the cd's and pop them in on long drives very often but yeah, yeah, I, I can see i can see so here comes my sort of hot take. Uh, I've been thinking a lot lately about three specific artists who are huge, but if now they are important and they're great artists for what they do. But what I mean specifically here is that each one 
uh, does not have like a vast catalog of albums that you need to own. And they are James Taylor, Elton John, and Lou Reed. Now, of course, I know, I know. You're, everyone who's listening is just shaking their head. My yeah. feeling on that is that uh, for as great as James Taylor is, to me, he has one album and a greatest hits that you would need to own. You know what I mean? And yes, same sir. with Elton John. Elton John has Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And I like Honky Chateau. But other than that, I wouldn't say there is, an, there is a must-own album. And even those two, you never see them on like a top 100 albums of all time. And then lastly, of course, Lou Reed, who, let's be honest, a lot of his stuff is almost unlistenable. But when he hits it, I mean, the Vel- excluding the Velvet Underground, Velvet Underground are amazing and they deserve all the credit they get. And okay, you, I can hear you over there just winding up, ready to go. Transformer is incredible. But beyond that, it's a lot of experimentation and some of it works and some of it doesn't. And I think what we love about Lou is his, the fact that he experimented, not necessarily, there's not a vast catalog of Lou songs or albums where you're like, ah, I just need to put on some Lou Reed and, uh, you know, wash my fears away or whatever. Now you come back at me. You tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> um, I'm, 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 I'm not coming back with you on James Taylor. Okay. I think I'm with you. I'm with you totally. Okay. In fact, I can even say you get greatest hits from James Taylor. That really is enough. I and love Sweet Baby James. I think that's a perfect album. But other than that, and a greatest hits, you really don't need a lot of James. No, but, but, no, but an extensive greatest mm-hmm. hits, an extensive yes. greatest hits. We're there, and I and and, and I speak as someone whose favorite James Taylor song is "Your Smiling Face," mm. which is the most corny, <laughs> sentimental <laughs> piece of claptrap you can imagine, and I absolutely love it. Good. I think it's magnificent in its gormless simplicity um <laughs> yes great. i don't think i don't think you need i don't think you need a, 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 a james taylor album so look let, let's let's park that there and say and, okay. and say that we're we're very much together okay. um who is next elton Your, john elton john elton john no 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 there we do we do part company i'm afraid mm. um elton john elton john is he's one, because he's the best, and I know this has nothing to do with any of his music, he's the best interviewer, mm. interviewee you could possibly I imagine. Yeah. I could just, I, I could po- not for a moment get bored of being Elton John's company. Mm. The mad stuff that he does, the fact that when charts mattered, i.e. for most of his mm. career, then he would handwrite all the chart positions of his singles in his little handwritten book. The fact that, that that you suggest something to him, a new act he hasn't heard of, he will go out and buy it. Two copies, of course, because he's Elton John. He'll go out and buy two copies of the album that you recommended to him. The fact that if he doesn't like something, he will tell you he doesn't like it and he will bitch away and he will be articulate and funny. The problem with his music is, of course, that he doesn't write his own lyrics. Mm-hmm. And this means to, to me that there is a certain distance from it always. Mm-hmm. And I, I sadly have never, never sp- spoken to Bernie Taupin. Mm-hmm. Um, but he seems very much capable of in- inhabiting Elton's personality. But it's still not the same mm-hmm. as... Uh, Elton John being able to write his own lyrics mm-hmm. and I don't understand why this isn't to be for someone yeah. so articulate for someone so great with words why even at the height 
of his cocaine madness. The point <laughs> where you think you rule the world, as he did, and in fact he did actually rule the world at that point. Sure. Then when he splits up with Bernie for the first time, he gets a new lyricist in, the very uh, the, the hugely underrated Gary Osborne. Mm -hmm. He didn't think even his hubris and his arrogance didn't make him write lyrics at that point. And I do think that's a terrible, terrible loss. But he's done a succession, not a succession, throughout his career, he's done several extraordinarily great albums. And even, say like James Taylor, where you, uh, to be generous, you'd like an extensive mm -hmm. uh, best of. For Elton John, that extensive best of would run to at least a box set. True. I, no question he is one of the greatest <clears throat> singles artists of all time. I guess my my sense, though, is that somebody as beloved and important as he is, there are not a lot of must-own, canonical, if that's the <clears throat> right word, out little uh, specific albums by him that are, you know, like, like someone like an Elvis Costello or a Paul McCartney or some of these other peers of his that may have had multiple albums that you would have to own in a 100 greatest albums of all time. Sure. I, I, I think his singles overshadow his albums. Some of his albums are patchy. Not all of them yeah. are, you know, uh, must owns other than to me, goodbye, yellow brick road. Yeah. I mean, if you listen, even, even at his, his peak, if you listen to an album such as say caribou, mm -hmm. that's really hard work. Mm -hmm. You know, the cocaine albums are all, absolutely appalling the 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 later period is it's variable but you listen to albums such as red strikes back mm -hmm. red strikes back not his most heralded album by any means mm -hmm. but it's excellent and it's it's a mid-period album there's no mm -hmm. reason for it to be excellent because elton doesn't have a great quality control button mm -hmm. it's no. out too much stuff his last few albums have not been properly promoted, even in an era mm -hmm. when albums aren't selling very well. He should take a lot less time between albums. And even when, say, he made a, the follow-up to Captain Fantastic, I can't even remember what it was called. Was that it was the, uh, yeah, was it the um, Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano no, Player? No, or, no, 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 we're talking, no, no, no. We're Rock talking, of the Westies? No, 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 we're talking decades later. It's about, oh, it's two, oh sure, sure. Oh, yeah, 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 I know what you mean. And, and um, he yeah. did this he did a follow-up to one of his most pivotal albums, and yeah. no one knew about it. And the yeah. fact that I can't remember the title. The Captain you know, and the Kid or something like that. Of, I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. you're thinking of different decades. Yeah. I can't remember the title. <laughs> it shows that something somewhere is wrong in how he's presented himself. And he he makes it worse for himself because he is he's often treated as a figure of fun. Mm -hmm. And I don't think his music is the music of... A figure of fun. He just makes things difficult for himself, in so many words. Um, but as an interviewee, as I said, he's oh, he's the best. Absolutely, I love him. Um, but keep keep in mind, maybe you can't remember the name of that album because Elton John is not a album first artist. He's a singles first well, artist, and we well, maybe, the, the, some of the greatest maybe, ever. You know, maybe there's maybe that maybe there's something in that, John. Yeah, but he's but the quantity as well as the quality of singles is extraordinary mm -hmm. it's true it's very you, true i don't know how many singles he's released you must be into three figures now i don't just mm -hmm. do singles anymore but lead sure. lead tracks off albums or whatever you want to call them mm -hmm. but you go through the decades 
And if you if you cherry pick, which I know is partly your argument, mm-hmm. but you've got an extraordinary career. And some of the stuff that you wouldn't pick out of the cherry picking is good. And yeah. yes, you're right. Some of his albums, many of his albums are patchy mm-hmm. and he needs to think before releasing stuff. You know, remember the one night album he did, yeah. which where did he played a live concert and released the album of it the next day. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, don't do that. Let's just put some overdubs. Make it better. Right. The fact that the fact that you put an album out the day it might not have been the day, but it was pretty it was within a few hours of the concert doesn't make it good, Elton. Mm-hmm. It makes it a gimmick. Yeah. Very true. Stop it. Yeah, very true. Okay, now let me have it about Lou Reed. Lou Reed. Where are you, where are you going with this? <laughs> well, think about it. John, let me ask you. Do you have multiple Lou Reed albums that you enjoy? Because I have Transformer and I have His Greatest Hits and I got New York, which is good, but I think we, we like it more than we actually mean oh, it New York because, because you know, he's Lou and... Anyway. Yeah, all right. New York, New York is a, is is an album people have to pretend to like. Right. I, I I give you I I'll give you that. I'll give you obviously metal machine music, mm-hmm. and I'll give you some of his drug albums mm-hmm. in the seventies and the eighties. Um, but I he's he, the arguments that you you made for Elton are completely contradictory to the ones that you would you'd make for Lou. He is an albums artist, mm-hmm. and. Think, I genuinely think that they need a bit of time and a bit of work. It's not immediate. It's never meant to be immediate. You know, Lou Reed makes you work. He really does. He makes you work mm-hmm. at does. live concerts when he's, well, he was, of course, when he was extraordinarily grumpy mm-hmm. and he wouldn't let people in during songs. And when he did, when he stopped a song and let them in, then he started berating them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I like that, you know. It means it's someone who's who's caring about his work, but it, it, because he's not superficial, and because mm-hmm. he has uh, some fans who are very much uh, how can we say this? Uh, he has some he he has some fans who will, will hear no wrong about him, mm-hmm. and there's a bit of Emperor's New Clothes about him, mm-hmm. but 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 he's his last clutch of albums, even that one he did about Edgar Allan Poe's. The Raven. The Raven. Great. Proper really? Indie. Yes. Oh, Not wow. great. I don't know. Great. But, uh, but he made albums. And he did. The more you work on them, the more you work on it, the more work you put into listening and appreciating hmm. a album, the better it comes out of okay. it. Okay, okay. And I think every every single album, he's not an easy artist, you know. Not every, mm-hmm. not every album, not every artist are the basic rollers. You know, some people are the total opposite of that. And it's, and you know, there's stuff about Lou Reed that isn't right. Lou Reed, great. Can we just say, too, Lou Reed, great fun to interview. <laughs> really? Did you ever interview yes. him? Yes. Yes, I did. He's I, notoriously uh, bad. Are you being sarcastic? I'm not being sarcastic. Again, people say I'm being sarcastic. No, no, brilliant interview. Look, oh. the, the, there was the key, the key to interviewing Lou Reed was that you know at some point along the line you will have to, you you would have had to be interested in a, a twenty minute soliloquy mm. about the remastering of his albums. Yes. And the genius mm. of Bob Ludwig, who is the the person who remastered all his albums, and I mean obviously Bob Ludwig, I'm sure is a mastering genius and a, a lovely man, I'm sure, but mm. it's quite a boring twenty minute soliloquy. <laughs> 
But if, but if, but mm. you build around that, and you listen, and you chip in with a couple of questions mm. that make it look like you're interested, mm. then you can ask all the other stuff. Okay. And he's great. He's a, he's he's there's only him and Neil Diamond who I've ever sat in a room with who have smoked uh, cigars really? and not them out. Really. Um, Yes, yes. He's, so, so he's so Lou Reed, very much, very much in. Uh, uh, clearly, you don't get any access with Lou Reed. Uh-huh. So, interview in his dressing room in Poland, but still in his dressing room. And Lou Reed smoking this obviously very, very expensive cigar and very much dominating the atmosphere, both, both of course, metaphorically and literally. Yeah. And so, my technique was just to ignore the uh, the, the, the smoking of the cigar. Uh-huh. And uh, carry on. Ask him loads of ask him loads of questions. Do the twenty minute Bob Ludwig remastering stuff. <laughs> so leave that out of the main thing. Right. Although, although <laughs> I did tell him that he'd opened my eyes about the art of remastering. Um, of course, you got to butter him up. Yeah. Well, he, well, he had opened my eyes, and I believe he'd also, it. He'd also closed them in, in, <laughs> in other ways too. Um, and then it, once you've done that, then you ask about all the other. Stuff. He yeah. wants to talk about that. He wants to. He wants. He wants to appear to dominate. Oh, he wanted. I, mm-hmm. I still think he's alive. Um, he wanted to dominate. He wanted to dominate the situation, and that's fine. Mm. You dominate. Also, it's like in interviews, people are rude to you. If people yeah. are rude, fine. That's mm-hmm. fine because I can write about this not as a sort of revenge, but as a much more interesting character yeah. study. Yeah, yeah, people are monosyllabic. If people are if people are rude. Then that's fine. I don't take it personally. We're not mm-hmm. going to be friends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, Very we are, true. We're never ever going to be friends. You will not. Next time you come to London, you will not be <laughs> calling me up and saying, "Do you fancy a, fancy going out for a drink, John?" Right. No, you won't ever. You won't be doing that. So that's right. okay. So you can yeah. be as rude as you please, and I will write about the question, which is the only real question when you interview people, which is, "What are you like?" Yeah. Yeah. Good that's point. It. You know, every time you meet someone, even you meet people in any any uh, area of your life that people know but don't know, if you know what I mean, then mm-hmm. the first question is, what are they like? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. it. That's, That's it. True. And yeah. if, you can tell your, if you can tell your readers or your people what they are like, then you have succeeded. And it might mm-hmm. be around a framework of talking about the, the, the fifth track on the 20th album. Fine. Mm-hmm. Fine. But if you're telling the if you're telling the readers and informing them what the people you have sat opposite for an hour or for days or for twenty minutes or whatever, if you're saying what they what are they like, and you answer that question, then you have a brilliant piece. Yeah, I agree. Okay, well, good. Okay, well, let me ask you some other questions. My last final thought on on Lou is just to say <laughs> that I think people, I think he, <laughs> I think what he stands for is. Uh, what he stands for overwhelms the actual quality of a lot of his work. And because he means a lot artistically to people as like a renegade and a individual yeah. and a rebel. And, you know, he's so out there, always pushing, never caring what you think. That appeals to a lot of people artistically yeah. and creatively. And so yeah. they give him a lot of leeway when his music, the actual result, the music itself doesn't always uh, deserve as much credit or leeway as people who love him want to give it to him. That's my I, yeah. I can I, I see exactly where you, you, you're coming from, but I think there's a, a, a there's a, a sort of snobbish aura around Lou Reed, which means 
that his albums don't get listened to properly. And I know that sounds arrogant, but I mean, by by properly, what I mean is enough. And I think if you listen, if not you personally, of course, if people listen to those albums at length, if they've got the time and the inclination to do that, then like the band, like other groups that we've we've talking about, Mm -hmm. they will be rewarded. Okay. Okay, I'll go back and give it more shots. I, uh, he deserves it, I agree. Uh, okay, tell us your Desert Island Disc, your number one favorite album of all time. What is it? Joy Division. Huh. <laughs> Unknown really? Precious. Okay. No, not really. Not really, because we'll, we'll have it. We, we, we'll change. We'll, it will change tomorrow. Uh-huh. I, honest, I, without, without, sounding, without sounding pompous, then I honestly don't have I have set albums, of course, sure. I, I think are magnificent. But if you ask me today, and that's the one that comes yeah. to mind. Okay. That, but there isn't. There's not. There's not one that I, I I hold above each above every single album because albums, you know, records are made for moods. They're made mm-hmm. sure. for situations, and there's a context and the time that you're hearing them. But right now, right now. Joy Division, okay. unknown place. Okay. But tomorrow could be, be meatloaf, you know? Yeah, sure. Oh, that's funny. I just had a conversation with somebody for this podcast the other day about my feelings about Joy Division possibly being overrated as well. But I will keep that opinion <laughs> to myself. Uh, overrated Share is the wrong... John. No, no, no. Overrated is the wrong term. I, I listed them as a band that I should love and don't as much as I should, considering all the other bands that I love that are just like them, influenced by them, played with them. You know what I mean? It, it should have yep. been, it should be my sweet spot, and yet it's not. I, I like it a lot, but it doesn't, I don't, it's not an all-time favorite. Or anything. Well, say, unlike, say, James Brown, I think Joy Division are infinitely better than all the bands that they've influenced. Mm-hmm. Okay. Whereas James, the people James Brown has influenced, have done it better than, oh, good point. than okay. it is. Okay. Uh, but there's a, also there's context. I, you know, I've got a sort of northern northern British working class background. I can see that they were the the, the space age soundscapes that they were creating about their home city Manchester in that record. Then it chimes. So that's an extra context that someone like myself would have on that that someone like you with a grace mm. and respect would never have because yeah. you haven't experienced that yeah and also also seeing them live again yeah yeah okay okay that i will would... accept that yeah um now give i people most of my listeners know my answer to this i'll tell you just for the <laughs> sake of telling you my favorite album historically has always been the first credit house album um oh okay yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, my second favorite album, and I haven't updated my list in many years, but it used <laughs> to be the first Trash Can Sinatra's album. Oh, my word. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great response. <laughs> you're just so confused. Or you're not. You're sizing me up and you're realizing this guy's Bush League that I'm talking to. I can't tell. Yeah. But I, I, do you know, I, I'm, not even, I'm not even sure a member of the Trash Can Sinatra's would have that album. <laughs> I, I, I'm more impressed than I can say, John, honestly. Honestly. Okay. I just love them a lot. They were just here. I saw them in concert maybe two weeks ago, and they played their first two albums entirely. And I think they're great. Um, okay, a favorite song. Do you have an all-time favorite song? Can I give you? Can I give you two very contrasting sure. ones? Sure. Yes, please. Can I give you? Can I give you? And no one else will, of course, ever do this. Can I give you Meatloaf? 
rock yeah. and roll dreams rock and roll dreams come true yeah. because you can't run away forever but there's nothing wrong with getting a good head start you want to shut out the night you want to shut down the sun you want to shut away the pieces of a broken heart think of how we lay down together we've been listening to the radio so loud and so strong Someone must have blessed us when he gave us those songs I treasure your love I never want to lose it You've been through the fires of hell And I know you got the ashes to prove it I treasure your love I want to show you It's not the people sneer at me, like, but they're wrong because he's working with Jim Steinman, who's obviously one of the great geniuses yep. of popular music. Totally. Um, Rock and Roll Dreams come through one because it's got not one, not two, but three different choruses. Mm-hmm. But because uh, also, and each one, each of those choruses is a Steinman chorus, mm-hmm. which makes it, of course, extraordinary. But but the the thing that it's trying to impart in the lyrics. There's the, the child notion of, of being under your, your bed covers, listening to, to music late at night. And everybody done that. You've done it, of course you have. I've done it, mm-hmm. of course I did. And it's that understanding, and I don't think any song has ever expressed it better, of the healing power and the understanding that pop music, something as trivial, as ephemeral as pop music can bring and how it can change lives and how it can underpin lives and make it better. Now, some people think that's a really sentimental, slack lyric. It's not. It's not John at all. It's a fundamental understanding of rock music. And I don't think anybody has expressed that better. Good. I would agree. I love Meatloaf. Good one. Okay. Give us another. I'll give you... Yeah, let's go. Let's 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 talk about Warren G. Which oh. is, uh, I would imagine it's something that people haven't often said on your, your podcast. <laughs> no one's ever said that. Nope, you're right. Let's talk about Warren G. <laughs> let's let, let's talk about Regulate. <laughs> it's such a good song. It was a clear black night, a clear white moon. Warren G was on the streets, trying to consume some search for the E, 
so I can get some phones rolling in my ride, chilling all alone. Just hit the east side of the LBC on a mission trying to find Mr. Warren G. Seen a car full of girls, ain't no need to tweak. All of you search know what's up with 213. So I hooked a left on 21 and Lewis. Some brothers shooting dice, so I said, let's do this. I jumped out the rock and said, what's up? Some brothers pulled some gas, so I said, I'm stuck. Since these girls peeping me, I'm gonna glide and swerve. These hookers looking so hard, they straight hit the curve. Want to bigger, better things than some horny tricks. I see my homie and some suckers all in his mix. I'm getting jacked, I'm breaking myself. I can't believe they taking Warren's wealth. They took my rings, they took my Rolex. I looked at the brother, said, damn, what's next? They got my homie hemmed up and they all around. Can't none of them see him if they going straight down for pound. They want to come up real quick before they start to clown. I best pull out my strap and lay them busters down. They got guns to my head. I think I'm going down. I can't believe it's happening in my own town. If I had wings, I would fly. Let me contemplate. I glance in the cut and I see my homie Nate. 16 in the clip and one in the hole. I'm inclined to think is is one of the most important, if important is the right word, hip hop songs. But it's it's gentleness of sound. It's slightly confrontational lyric, and it's wistfulness is what makes for a great hip hop record. And I find it, and I, I, I think I'm specifically wrong here. I find it incredibly moving. And Warren G, yeah, he, he knew he knew his his West Coast gang culture, of course he did. But he's often dismissed as being a lightweight. But he, I think, was one of the great transitional figures in hip hop. And this this was his finest moment. But it was the finest moment of a a West Coast the, the West Coast genre. And you hear that, and it's it's both it's hard and soft within the same song at the same moment. And to pull that trick off, to pull it off so successfully, I think makes it a great, great record. But yet again, tomorrow I'll give you yep. two more different okay. ones. Oh, that is great. Those are two perfect choices. I love it. Um, my favorite song of, of all time yeah. is almost always "As" by Stevie Wonder. Um, <sighs> beautiful yeah yeah that's uh that's almost historically number one if i i've mentioned that before on here too so i would say my number two is usually going back to neil finn message to my girl by split ends oh yeah that, that period split ends yeah yeah i um I, I i hate to say this i've never quite warmed up to tim finn and i feel bad because i'm sure that half the millions of people feel that way and he's probably sitting there as neil's older brother like why can't I get any respect here? You know, and yeah, unfortunately, I, I, I'm just I'm one of those people too. And I, uh, I think that relation, the relationship between the two brothers, one because Tim, Tim, he's obviously the older brother, and mm -hmm. he's he's a very dominant personality. You know, he's the one who he married the film star. He got his little brother into what was his group, mm -hmm. and he didn't realize the monster that he was creating. From this sort of homely person who's been married to the same woman for decades, uh, the very strong on family in a way that Tim hasn't really been able to, I think. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's it, there's something of the morality tale in the, the Finns' relationship, you know. And I hope mm -hmm. I hope Tim's happier than he often appears to be. Yeah, yeah. I feel bad saying that, but I just I yeah. I'm not interested in the Tim dominated era of split ends nor much of his solo album but uh, solo stuff but i do love neil 
But um, incidentally, incidentally, the Finn yeah. brothers, the Finn brothers were great. Yeah, they were. Really, um, yeah, I they, agree. I have those albums, and they're good too. Yeah, and yeah I agree. Yeah. And, and, and and it seemed to me to be the only time where someone wasn't in the ascendancy. Mm-hmm. I and would that, agree with that. Yeah. And that made the Finn brothers such a, a viable uh, situation. Obviously, it didn't last long, mm-hmm. but while it was while it was happening, it was good. It was too. Two talented people coming together. And clearly, I think you and I would agree that one person is more talented than the other here. Yeah. But Tim Tim has his talents, although he seems to have often done his best. Not done his best, but he seems to have accidentally hidden them. Yeah, I know. It's a shame. And that's tied up with the relationship with his brother. Yeah. Uh, do you have a guilty pleasure? Uh, you could name a band or a song or an album, but is there a guilty pleasure? I should preface this by saying I'm not somebody who believes in guilty pleasures, but you are a world-renowned rock critic oh. and thought leader. And is there, uh, you've already devoted your, you know, expressed your love for the Bay City Rollers. Do you have a guilty pleasure out there that you just love, but you don't tell too many people about it? Well, I, I, clearly I've blown this before we started by talking about the, the Bay City Rollers right. at the beginning. But, um, and again, like you, I, I, if you say something is a guilty pleasure, that's an indication of it being wrong. And I, I genuinely don't think that anything I like is it's wrong to like it. You know, mm-hmm. come to me, come to me, tell me it's naff, and I will tell you why it's not naff, why it's good, and why your prejudice is the problem that's causing this. However, I think those early David Essex singles mm. when he was a teen star are hugely hugely underrated mm. they're about all sorts of weird stuff they uh, and you've got things like gonna make you a star I don't know how familiar you are with David Essex not that much I mean weird. I know the name and I know a few others yeah. David Essex he was a teeny but he's, he's, he's basically uh, one of those teeny bopper pop stars who uh, had a, the very rakish at the time earring, and that was made him seem slightly rebellious okay. in in, in uh, mid seventies Britain. However, David Essex one wrote his own material. Two, he appeared in two brilliant, absolutely extraordinary, super bitter pop star films. That'll be the day and Stardust, which I think is the most no-holds-barred description of a pop star crumbling in front of you. Total fiction, of course. Mm-hmm. But there's a, 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 in, in Stardust, there's an incredibly disturbing scene where David Essex plays the washed-up pop star Jim McLean. He gives his manager's dog a tab of acid. <laughs> of course, the dog dies and the scene is absolutely horrific to watch but the bleakness of that portrayal is is absolutely shark-eyed and for a teeny bop pop star to do it and he was a good actor then it shows there's something else about him but the songs the songs that he made like uh, gonna make you a star so cynical about the process of pop music no one was thinking like this at the time. Stardust itself, the title track from that film, that's absolutely extraordinary. It's such a spacey, spaced out, bitter record. Mm. And he also makes songs about going motorcycle riding as well. <laughs> so is it he? He is 
uh, hugely underrated even now because he's been he's a lot of the actors taken over he's been in british soaps and everything and he's seen as a not quite a figure of fun but as as right. as yesterday's man but he's ripe for rehabilitation and rediscovery okay good david essex i'll have to go look that up mm. um mm. okay i uh Trying to think what I would say. So my guilty pleasure. You may yeah. remember these guys better than some uh, Americans. So around 1987, there's this big uh, British sophistopop uh, movement going on with bands like Swing Out Sister and oh, yeah. Breathe and Simply Red and Wet Wet oh. Wet and all that kind of stuff. And I, I you know, I'm realizing what's that. I interviewed all of them. I bet you did. Um, did you hate that stuff? By the way, uh, no one. Some of it. Uh, Breathe I had trouble with, although I'm very interested okay. in, in the, the whereabouts of Breathe now. I think one I of the, one, can tell you all about it, actually. David, David Glasper, isn't it? Yep, yep. He, didn't he go to Southeast Asia or something? He did. He married a woman from Southeast Asia, and um, she lived on a farm, and they she died, and he still lives on this farm, and he's kind of lost his mind in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. I have been trying for years to get him on this show, Apparently he's a total technophobe and he won't, he doesn't know how to use the internet or email or cell phones or anything like that. His son posted some videos of him on YouTube a few years ago and it's him sitting there shirtless with like a giant dragon tattoo on his shoulder, just reading poetry. It's very strange. The guy, he's, I think he might be a little bit crazy. So. Well, when I, when I met him, I mean, I need to breathe more than once. Uh -huh. Um, and he was a totally straight record company guy, mm -hmm. teen heartthrob in the making, but it never quite happened. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, don't I, know. I think another member of Breathers died as well, I think. Yep. The uh, drummer, and I can't remember his name right now, but Marcus. Marcus Lillington is still alive, and he runs a company oh. in London, and he turned me down to come on and let me interview him. And there's another guy, Mick Delahunty, who's kind of also off the grid somewhere. And then the drummer, whose name I can't remember, died. But yeah. Um, I, uh, yeah, I'm. I did hear back from David Glasper's people recently, saying that they would try and make this happen. So we'll see. But anyway, Good look. yeah, Good look. thanks. Uh, but I, I have a soft spot for that movement in all of those bands. Yeah. And one of my favorite albums of all time is the first album by Curiosity Killed the Cat. Do you remember <laughs> that group? Of course I do. <laughs> Good. And they had a big song called Misfit. Down to on this. Yes, Down to Earth. That's another one. Uh, Ordinary Day. I That is one of my probably top 10 favorite albums of all time. And uh, ben, I love ben that. Ben Volpier, P.O., he uh, resurfaced in the last couple of months. Yeah, I've he, had him on the show. It did not. He was, it was a, a difficult interview, actually. I can imagine. He was on a dating program. Oh, oh gosh. Well, uh, good. This yeah. Is about, he, uh, this is about a month ago, and it was, I can't remember what the program's called. Um, but it's where two people meet up for the first time, uh -huh. haven't met each other, and they're obviously it's all filmed. Mm -hmm. um, and he still had the hat, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you wouldn't recognise him if you walked past him in the street. No. Um, and I don't think he, I don't think he went that well. He seemed a, quite a peculiar man. Yeah, it seemed that way. I interviewed him two years ago, and it was yeah. it wasn't the best. Uh, it was a little weird. <laughs> So anyway, yeah, well, Curious, I, their first album, plus the Blow Monkeys are one of my favorite bands <laughs> of all time, believe it or not, still. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I love them. I had Dr. Robert on here, too, and that's one of my finest moments. Um, <laughs> anyway, 
Uh, okay, last question to you. What's the yeah. best concert you've ever seen? Oi. Um, that, well, the, the, the concert that I saw that I mentioned to you about seeing The Clash, mm-hmm. that's definitely up there. Okay. Um, certainly some of the, the Dex's Midnight Runners shows much later than... The one that I saw was brilliant, but the context isn't quite right, I think, to say that, because it was, it was my, my head was totally gone at that point, as you'd mm-hmm. imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I saw Dex is a lot later than the, the, their extraordinary power as a, a live band was really, really mm-hmm. something else. Mm-hmm. Um, Leonard Cohen. Oh. And I'm giving, you, I'm giving you a lot of names because, I, because again, you asked me tomorrow, it'll change. Sure. Leonard Cohen at his best. Not at his best. Leonard Cohen late on was amazing, even when he should have been past his best. Yeah, <laughs> he's another way- name I almost listed earlier as an overrated. I, I've never come around to Leonard Cohen, but I again I know that's my failing. I just oh, uh, I've never warmed up to it. I know, I know. You're just laughing. I can tell over there. You're just like what? I'm shaking your no, head. No, what no. did I agree to here? This guy is so off. I know. Too shocked, I'm sorry. Too shocked to laugh, John. <laughs> Um, but he, Leonard Cohen, Leonard Cohen, when he was, he was, I think he was in the late seventies or eighties, the last time I saw him, and he, he played the O2 in London, which is holds about fifteen thousand people, and everyone else who goes there has massive screens, big backdrops, lasers, everything else. Leonard Cohen, he might have had a screen, nothing, just mm. him and his little band on a. <coughs> sorry about that. Just mm-hmm. him. Him and his band, which would have fitted on a, the stage of a, a small pub, mm-hmm. playing there, and he enraptured everyone. Wow. The banter was great, the songs were great, and he over he overdid the the I'm so humble shtick. But sure. I, you know, he was Leonard Cohen. Sure. I didn't mind. Sure. He was he was great. And then when you're seeing live bands, some it depends what you're looking for. You know, some like. On, on each individual evening, someone like Kraftwerk, extraordinary. Mm. I don't know how much they actually play, but mm. the spectacle that they create from this deep, soulful, I think it's soulful anyway. Yeah. Not yeah. Other people think it's cold, but it's not. It's no, soulful. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. This soulful music that, that Kraftwerk make. Seeing Sparks, that's a special thing for me, seeing them sort of 20, 25 years after buying Kimono My House. Mm-hmm. Seeing them again was a... a uh, an amazing thing, and again, they lived up to what you'd hope that they would be. It's meeting your heroes thing, mm-hmm. yes, again, meeting your heroes, seeing them, embracing your actual feelings towards them that made them your heroes in the first place. True, true. Um, and yeah, if you go see if you go see Randy Newman, you'll be entertained for the whole mm-hmm. evening. Mm-hmm. All the songs are great, but he he's. Sure. To listen to them is amazing, but again, yeah. and then you see some some of the grunge bands, some of the the, the hip hop acts. I see Public Enemy at the peak. Wow, I love Public Enemy, the, I love them. Power, yeah. the power that they that they could muster, mm-hmm. and even Snoop Snoop Dogg live. Mm-hmm. I love Snoop Dogg. You know, I love that voice. Mm-hmm. Such a seductive, ex, not exciting. It's such a seductive, mellifluous voice, mm-hmm. and seeing mm-hmm. him live. It doesn't always work because the, the, the sound values aren't what you'd hope. Sure, but sure. there are moments where it does, and he just glides across the music. It's almost yeah. like, almost like jazz. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. 
Well, thank you, uh, John. I hope I didn't uh, annoy you too much with my, you know. <laughs> of course you didn't. You haven't, you juvenile opinions about some music. Not a, John. Okay. Not at all. Okay. Not at all. It's about, it's also, I love people who disagree. Mm-hmm. It's great. You get more things from them, you know. I agree. You get more things. You say this, you know. Music is, if music, if I say I like something and you say you don't, I'm right. You say you like something and I say I don't, you're right. It's the yeah. person who likes the stuff and appreciates the stuff. Who is right, not I, the other person. I That's the agree. beauty, the beauty and the joy of it, John. Yeah, I agree. Um, do you have any, uh, two, uh, quick, give me a quick answer. You being at uh, Q in the 90s, how do you feel about Oasis? Do you love them or hate them? Neither. Oh, okay. um, I know that's not the answer you're looking for, but they, but there's, there's, <clears throat> and you wanted a quick answer, of course, I'm not going to give you a quick answer, that, <laughs> that they, they've done moments of brilliance. They've mm-hmm. done moments of brilliance and you, and what, the mystery for me about Oasis is how Liam Gallagher could stand there with his hands behind his pockets with the sunglasses, mm-hmm. so therefore there's no eye contact, barely move for 90 minutes and still be one of the great front men. Mm-hmm. And I still don't understand to this day, I've seen him in BDI, I've seen him solo, how he pulls it off. But he does, and he pulls it off every time. But listening to those later Oasis albums is hard work. Mm. I, they don't. It doesn't bother me. They're a top ten, probably all time favorite band for me. I just was curious. Yeah. See, you're right. You're right. <laughs> no. I, you're the expert here. That's why I wanted no, to talk to you. No, 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 no. no, no. You, you, you say those 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 later Oasis albums are good. You're right, and I'm wrong. Uh, they're they're not unlistenable. Uh, I can handle them. No, they're not. I don't live no, out. Dig, I don't love dig out your soul or heathen chemistry, but I. I think some of the other ones have some merit, but anyway. Okay. Well, John, uh, this was such a treat. I think you're so great. Just <laughs> hearing you say the words cocaine that way, because I've heard you say that on the show. And of course, that's not how Americans say cocaine. Is it? Just, yeah, well, sure. It's cocaine. And just hearing you say cocaine in that, in that accent that my daughter and I sit and watch on the couch every week. Is kind of mind blowing. So thank you for being you, and thank you for talking to me. What a pleasure! Thank you very much, John. All right. Look after yourself. There you have it, John Azelwood. He's so expressive. You know, no one talks like that. That accent, that is just great. I felt. Did you guys notice a couple of times? It felt like he, like he wanted to kind of like reach through Skype and just strangle me with some of my opinions. And you could hear the you could hear the wheels turning when he was piecing together. Oh, BYU, Utah. No wonder this guy's an idiot. You know. Anyway, funny, John. Thank you. Uh, and I meant what I said. I, we might have to do this a second time because once it got going, I realized talking about Q Magazine and stuff like that—that's where it's at. I didn't know about that, and I never know whether the person I'm talking to is going to be very forthcoming with their stories. I'm always afraid to go there because I'm always afraid that it looks as if I'm trying to kind of dig up dirt or be salacious or, you know, uh, in uh, gossipy or whatever. And I ne- I'm always very, very careful to do that. But he started to kind of offer some information that was so interesting. I thought that's where we need to go. So anyway, John, if you're ever open to doing this with me again, let's do that. And let's just dive into the, your career and the people you've interviewed and what they're like and all that kind of stuff. Fascinating. Uh, by the way, I forgot to ask John at the end of our conversation, it went longer than I thought it would, what his closeout song would be. So I emailed him later and he said that since he had talked so much about Sparks and the Kimono My House album, he wanted to close it out with This Town, which is what you're listening to right here. Great track. 
Uh, now, next week, well, for the month of, of um, September, we're going to be, the next few weeks are largely going to be kind of yacht rock based, okay? Next week's guest is, did not start in the 70s, but he may as well have, and the guests the rest of that month are going to be 70s artists. Uh, super hustle nerds. You may have heard me or remember me mentioning on here a couple of times, buried in other episodes, that I have two favorite Yacht Rock tracks. One is Love Will Find A Way by Pablo Cruz, and the other is a song made famous by next week's guest. So I'll leave you with that. Uh, huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man, my buddy, for doing this with me. Thank you for everything that you do, Yan. I love being your partner in this. Uh, you guys know how to find us. Facebook, you can like our page, you can send us a message on there, you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can uh, find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. I just got back from the rock, from the Nashville Rock and Pod Expo. Uh, Yan and I will probably discuss it on our upcoming recap episode. Okay? Take care, everybody. We'll talk to you soon.